Okay, um, again, we're starting a little late, forgive us, but um, uh, today uh, we're going to devote most of our time to the evaluation and reevaluation of the preschool as we prepare to enter a new year, uh, 2022, and of course, Evaluating and reevaluating uh, is a way to think about the preschool. So we want to have um, WEB Du Bois, Baldwin Reading Group. Um, we're here, we're, we will hear uh, again from Van um, Dung and from Lotus, and uh, we have uh, something from. Bangalore, India, from Raju and Nandisko, their work. And uh, I think, Caleb, you will do uh, MIT again. Is anybody that, is anything I left out? Oh, oh, yes, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Viet Mayor. Yes. Okay. Oh, and so, yes, so, Sophia, so, Sophie and uh, Nathan. Okay. So uh, just a few things uh, to catch up with what's going on. Oh, by the way, hey, Danny, that's some great research you did on, um, you know, the internet stuff that you were doing uh, about Marx and- Oh, great. Sorry. Wow, man. I have to give you, you know, a lot. <laughs> You're just a humble yeah. servant, but you do know a lot. <laughs> um, just about three things I, I just want to draw your attention to this morning. Number one, Julian Assange, the British courts have said that he can be extradited to the United States. Julian Assange is a political prisoner. Mm -hmm. And he is a political prisoner. I mean, he is quintessentially a political prisoner because he is in jail because of his politics. And his politics are that of being a genuine journalist in a time where the United States carried out renewed wars, uh, especially in the Middle East. Let me just say this. I would say every war that the United States has been involved in since World War II has involved crimes against humanity and war crimes. Um, I don't know quite, you know, the, the atmosphere during the time of the Korean War, but as I look back upon it, the U.S. committed every kind of crime against humanity in Korea. But I can tell you about the war in Vietnam. And I can tell you about the threats constantly of bombing Vietnam and other Asian countries back into the Stone Age. I grew up hearing that as though it were a boast. You know, we'll teach you. But it's a part of the thuggish essence 
of the American ruling class. Uh, and we, we just, we can't get around it. Even though, I, I, just parenthetically, the horrible things that we see in the city of Philadelphia, this violence, especially as it affects the black community. We've never seen anything like it. They keep saying since 1990, uh-uh. We've never seen anything like this, a bloodbath. And uh, for Larry Krasner to come out and say, oh, we don't have a spike in crime, everything is okay, that's just an, it's an insult. It is an insult. And, and you know, just so I, I can tell you, I always, you know, I mean, he was a, a, an important change from the Lynn Abraham and the death penalty people and, you know, that type of thing. But too aloof, too unfeeling about ordinary people and their experience with crime and violence in their neighborhood. And we've had it up to here. Now we'll talk more about this, what is causing it, who is responsible for it, and then multiple levels of responsibility, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But for the city of Philadelphia, from the mayor to the DA to the city council, to sit on their hands in the face of this, is criminal. But we have said it over and over again that in a lot of ways, this not a lot of ways, this is not a democracy. It is a kleptocracy, you know, serving oligarchs. And the ordinary person in neighborhoods don't count one bit. So we'll come back to that. But um but with Vietnam, with Korea, with the wars in the Middle East, Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, and what Julian Assange exposed were US crimes, war crimes and crimes against humanity. And of course, they always try to claim that these are wars against, um, against uh, autocracy, against dictators, and we're bringing democracy and rights of women uh, and all of this, <laughs> you know, uh, so much for bourgeois feminism. I think we really have to get back to this. The whole, uh, uh, how they trump these ideolo ideologies, trump genuine freedom, genuine democracy. And these are elite discourses. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, Jahan was just telling me about how um, there's a shift. We see it with certain left forces or, you know, kind of, and, and Danny told me about this too, within, um, what's your organization name again? Platypus. Platypus. How one of their leaders had, had questioned uh, in 2020, the anti-Trump movement. And now it's playing out, you know, and I'm about, I'm about ready to take a victory lap. I, <laughs> I was careful. Hey, look, I went through some rough, but it wasn't that long before Biden exposed him. Well, 
I would say the Biden the Biden administration was exposed because this guy is, <laughs> is completely <laughs> out of shape. As they say, it's just he throws off. Yeah. Yeah. The brain cells are diminishing, and, and they. But anyway, but the extradition of Julian Assange. We have to be if he comes if if he is extradited to this country. We must be prepared for activism, for campaigns of education of the people about who he is and what he is suffering. And he is physically and psychologically in bad shape. I mean, for a guy to look like he does at his age and to have aged the way he has aged is a sign that he has been abused in prison. Now, a lot of people keep talking about, well, what got him in trouble is that he raped a woman in Sweden. Well, it turns out that the prosecutors in Sweden, I think it was Sweden, right? Yeah. They could not, they threw it out. It was BS, it was garbage. You know what I'm saying? And even I think the woman or one of the women said, no, nah, you know, that didn't happen. Like, you know, he is not a rapist. You know, he is not that. And that was a lie. That, and that has been an excuse for the political aims of the war makers, the most vicious war makers on the planet Earth. And they're saying to anyone who would tell the truth, any journalist, be he Glenn Greenwald, Matt Tahibi, uh, Aaron Mate, just a slew of, um, of journalists who operate outside of the corporate media. Or I would say uh, Alexander McCouris, uh, you know, a lot of stuff on, on YouTube. Any of that can be shut down immediately. And people who, who, who conduct journalism through those sites can be arrested and held as political prisoners. And therefore, uh, I say this all the time, this country is less free today than it was under McCarthyism. I can't, you know what I'm saying? I came up, you know, in a, I came up in the Cold War, not the height of the Cold War, but that period, still the Cold War, still war, still American confronting China, the Soviet Union, Vietnam, all that type of thing, Cuba. But a university, universities were still more or less open environments. You'd be surprised. This thing today, where you have to come, you know, with a uh, uh, million dollars of insurance. Mm -hmm to rent a room, you know, where all of the professors are, uh, are chosen, are tenured on the basis of whether or not they adhere to the dominant line of the ruling class and do not raise critical questions. You know, this idea of public intellectuals, they're not public intellectuals, they're, they're performers, actors. Some would even say comedians. <laughs> 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 
Uh, you know, I think we can compare him to Paul Robeson. We might do something on that. Uh, I know you, uh, Jeremiah had an article on Robeson that was that got some traction. We might have to do uh, Julie Massage and Paul Robeson. The uh, attack upon the organic intellectual. It's horrible. It is really horrible. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I already mentioned uh, Larry Krasner uh, and his statement about violence. It is a bloodbath in the Black community. Uh, their nation that have gone through civil wars, honor uh, like Lebanon, you know, uh, or uh, Kosovo, uh, you know, in, in the former Yugoslavia or uh, Serbia, you know, even nations where they're bombing in their big cities, you know, to have 500 people killed in a few months, that would be like, you know, I mean, we hear about the civil war in Lebanon, but I don't think Beirut has experienced what we're experiencing in Philadelphia, and we're not the worst. Philly is not the worst. And the government hands off. I mean, what are you doing in city council? President of city council, I don't, don't come around giving out turkeys on Thanksgiving. You know, and my children can't walk down the street. I'm scared to come out at night. This is terror. Now, and so the DA comes out. Oh, there's no problem. It's just like when I heard the slogan, defund the police. I said, wait a minute. I was listening to, you know, public radio. That's women. I, I, what, are, what are they saying? I couldn't figure, defund the police, this was uh, last summer. I couldn't figure out what they were saying. You know, I mean, the question of the state, you do not dismantle the state and leave nothing to replace it. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like chaos will, uh, uh, our, our solution, that's the petty bourgeoisie who lives in the suburbs and does not experience this or are reckless and don't give a damn. For them to say something like that is to say, well, we'll send social workers in and uh, you all just have to put up with killing and robbery and, and mayhem in the poor communities until we, we get it set up with the social workers and then more than that, you know, abolish the prisons. And, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is the most reckless, the most irresponsible, the most racist set of proposals you ever heard. And this is in the name of Black Lives Matter. You see what I'm saying? These people, these academics, these uh, 
people like this need to experience our utter contempt because they're no good. And for Larry Krasner and the mayor of Philadelphia and the city council, majority black city council, to act like nothing can be done. A lot can be done. A lot can be done. And I'm not speaking as a disengaged person. It's like I'm, I'm involved almost every day in discussing with people, people who are involved in the anti-violence movement, the grassroots movement, um, uh, people who've been killed, family members, and this type of thing. This is no small matter. This, what we are experiencing, they say this is the way it was uh, in 1993. That's not true. At the height of the crack wars in Philly, it was not this bad. With no sign of its abating, except, and I say this, and I hope you guys, you know, sensitive to what I'm saying, you know, almost like until these wanton killers and people without, I'll talk about the lack of a soul of a heart. I'll tell you how, that, how you manufacture that kind of dehumanized human being, you know, and, and I'll get to that in a minute. But at some point, hopefully, they'll get exhausted from killing one another and other Black people. And then it dies down, you know, and a lot in the government, that's the way they see it. Contain it, let them kill till they get, it, get tired of killing. And then uh, uh, we're back to where we were, you know, 15 years ago, so to speak. These individuals, in their youth and the young mind, the young male mind is a particular phenomenon, are direct products of a culture that they impose upon the black community, as well as the undermining of all institutions that produce a sense of, of social and human solidarity. You understand what I'm saying? Education produces empathy. Music produces empathy. Even, I mean, you can't say, well, I came from a broken home. A lot of people come from broken homes. And they become great artists. Louis Armstrong was raised in an orphanage. You know what I'm saying? John Coltrane, was raised by his mother in North Philadelphia. Uh, Billy Holiday. Mm -hmm. you, it does not say that because you don't have a traditional family structure that you're going to become a killer. There is something else going on. There's a zeitgeist, mm -hmm. a permission to kill another Black person. And this is where, and I know it's a controversial issue, not in the preschool, of course, 
culture, a capitalist racist culture imposed on the black community, there is no way you explain. You go from John Coltrane to Snoop Dogg, uh-uh. It was such a disruptive thing. I mean, I remember myself, I don't sound, I mean, how we get from that, Marvin Gaye, all that, you know what it is, and this. And then it was explained, well, um, you know, they're wearing their pants because of being in prison. Okay, I can understand that. But the prison culture cannot be an expression of a people's culture. We got prisoners in, in the black community, we got criminals in the black community. We got people who are ill in the black community. Certainly, conditions explain it. But then, this is what we talked about before. And this is why I keep going back to Eddie's thing of who is responsible. Who introduces policy that undermine public education, that take music out of school, that where there is no, there is no sports program, there is nothing to produce a full human being. That is the responsibility of society. Yes, the family. But the family is a part of society. Our churches, our mosques, you know, our uh, fraternal and sorority, I mean, the, the network of complex intersecting organizations and institutions that make up the black community. <clears throat> That's why sociology ain't worth a dime academic because it was the individual that's not the way we live we 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 can't survive with that ethos we cannot survive with that practice we need churches we need mosques we need uh recreation centers we need uh, uh basketball leagues and football leagues and, and track teams and music programs. You know, Lee Morgan and, and Art Blakey and Tr John Coltrane, and he, uh, they didn't go to no Juilliard. That would have killed them, of course. I mean, you're right. They, Lee Morgan learned to play the trumpet at Bach High School, which a vocational school. Uh, somewhat like that, yeah. But yeah. I think South Philly, yeah. It's, it's a lot of things, no. That, it, it's been gutted and gentrified. Okay. Yeah. It explains everything, yeah. you know. I mean, I can show you where Lee was from. You know, one of those little streets that I always talk about with the two-story houses, and all around him were factories. You know, a lot of ways, you know, people that know jazz say that in terms of virtuosity, Lee surpasses Miles. Oh, wow. They say the only only person 
that you can compare with Lee is Dizzy Gillespie and Louis Armstrong. That's how much of a virtuoso he was. And Bobby Timmons, the piano player out of South Philly, went to Central uh, Central High School. <laughs> you know, I mean, this rich of public life that we call the Black community has been purposely undermined, distorted, and destroyed. There, the, the intellectual life, nobody gave a damn if you went to temple or because most of our intellectuals, you know, they were ordinary working men and women who wrote poetry, who read books, you know? And, and I, I remember all the time, because they, they were my, my role models. Mm -hmm. They were dressed in a certain way, like a, a almost Tweedy kind of, you know what I'm saying? I, like I was dressed as when there's a symposium going on. I mean, they were very, and they would, they would always have albums of jazz. They were jazz people because that represented the most intellectual music. They were, they were readers of poetry. They were writers. They were thinkers. That was, that was the intellectual life. We weren't looking to any professors. And then, of course, I didn't mention our historically black colleges and universities. 95%, 90-95% until very recently, everybody went to college, went to a black college. And that makes a difference because we all had a similar academic experience. And you know, I, I say this all the time, and we didn't give a damn what was going on at Harvard. In fact, if, if, if a cat from Harvard came to Lincoln, we said, man, look, uh, come on, go back where you came. We don't, have, we don't want to hear that nonsense. I mean, we, I, I, I wouldn't lie. We looked down upon them mm -hmm. because we felt that we, as college students, were an arm of the Black community and that it was our responsibility to return and serve the Black community. You don't get that ethos today. You don't get it. And we have to restore it, we have to rebuild it. So this corrupt kleptocracy that is run for the interests of oligarchs and billionaires is a government that is against the people. Well, it's a government that does not govern. This city is run by Comcast. Mm -hmm. Horizon, some banks, University of Pennsylvania, powerful elite and white institution. So you put a front on it. Oh, look, we have a black president of city council. Most people say, so what? He ain't did nothing for the last 35 years, <laughs> you know? But still, yeah. and he's a friend of mine, I have to say, <laughs> but he's nothing. And I, you know, I mean, I have to, it's an interesting <laughs> dilemma that I, I mean, I'm like, oh, because I know, 
tell Clark, if, if, if we went to city council today and we went to his office mm. and could get in, <laughs> you know, yeah, first of all, and I say, hey, Darrell, what's up, man? Yeah, these, these are my colleagues from the Saturday Free School. First thing he will tell, oh, yeah, I learned economics from him. Oh, wow. He's not lying. I taught political economy in his neighborhood at a place called the Brotherhood House back in the day. And I was teaching political economy, historical materialism, and so on. And then they ran me out of there. Oh. <laughs> the brothers at the Brotherhood House. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle's always asked me, you won't write a book. How could I write a book? It reveals too many people I need to But the brothers ran me out of the brotherhood house. Mm. Very radical, 
uh, but we have to let him go. And I just, you know, and I just went, but I still ran for Congress. Uh, and then, of course, the last thing was Temple. And Malefe Asante was bold enough or ignorant enough to say it openly. He's not a he's not a scholar. He's nothing but a communist apparatchik. And this is, uh, I, I think that that was the the icing on the cake. That was uh, um, the most extreme of it. And so interesting. Only Joe Schwartz, the social democrat in the political science department. Lewis Gordon for a minute, and then he buckled mm -hmm. and went with Asante in there, you know? But, and the DSA at Temple were really supporters. I mean, and with signs, DSA, but most professors, most black professors at Temple and at the University of Pennsylvania, and I could name them. Mm -hmm. I could name them. First of all, let, let me, I know I'm going on a little bit, but it just, just to help understand. Look, we always talk about the virus, the poison, the toxicity of anti-communism. Now, anti-communism is not really directed at just the communists or mainly at the communists. That's the irony of the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? W.E.B. Du Bois, when he was imprisoned in the early 1950s, was accused of being an agent of a foreign government, by which they meant an agent of the Soviet Union, a communist, right? Paul Robeson, he may have been a member of the Communist Party or not, I don't know. He was, he was, he was close to the world movement for peace. He was not a communist. Martin Luther King was not a communist. So anti-communism is a broad umbrella to undermine those leaders who represent the democratic aspiration of the people. It's so, you know, having been a member of the Communist Party publicly and all of that type of thing. You would be, I mean, of course, you ain't going to go up to nobody and just, I'm a communist. I'm a, <laughs> not that BS, you know, where you have to put on some act. But most people, be they in unions, be they in churches, they want to know who you are, what you stand for. What are your values? You know what I'm saying? But the ruling class is always terrorizing the people. You know, oh, they're communists. You got to watch them. You know, so much so my father was an immigrant. And he was always, you know, very, and not just him, but everybody. Don't sign your name to anything. Just <laughs> always say that. Don't sign your name. That was the, the biggest thing. The FBI might get your name. I mean, that was already a recognition of the failure of democracy. You know what I'm saying? But 
these academics, in the face of Asante, and when he used the, the language he used, I could only assume, since it was the language of the FBI, who had heard the formulation, a communist apparatchik, recently? I mean, that's, that's from the deep 1950s. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm a communist apparatchik? What the fuck is that? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. To use that language, then I have to assume, oh, you with the FBI, money. <laughs> oh, you are FBI agent provocateur. <laughs> and I still hold to that. In fact, remember we went over New York and I spoke at Glenn Ford's thing? And I said, I, I didn't call him an FBI agent, you know, in the memorial because it would not have been appropriate. <laughs> because it was a memorial for my brother who had passed. Right. But I I made it clear. This is a this is a counter-revolutionary parading under Dashiki. Mm. You understand? Oh, I'm African-centered. So was what? what? <laughs> so was Mobutu who killed Patrice Lumumba, along with the FBI. So, but this did not disturb the intellectual sensibility of most academics. And I particularly take umbrage at black academics. Oh, you can speak out on everything. I don't include Cornell West. I don't include Angela Davis. And they're different. But most of them, nothing. So it is anti-communism. And we, you know, we, we study that here. We talk about it. It's multiple variations and forms. And, um, and I guess that's what, you know, makes... I guess, I, you know, I think about this, because I always think about the preschool. You know, why often such hesitancy to uh, join the preschool or become active with things the preschool does? And I could name names, so-called in the movement, you know, so-called, because uh, we did Winston, uh, Pan-Africanism. Mm -hmm. See that's that's one of the that that's one of the the, the shields or the covers the veils of counter revolution. Winston was absolutely right. He was absolutely right, and we still you know we're going to do more. But you so black, and that's what you know super blackness. You know that the communists are your enemies, just like the Catholics. And there is no evidence for that anywhere in history. You know what I'm saying? Or I, I have friends, you know, so much a part of the black community. I, every kind of discourse, every kind of formula, I hear it all, you know. But we can't trust him. We can't trust white folks. But we can't trust a lot of black people. Mm -hmm. Let's be real. <laughs> critical thinking is critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Political principle is standing on principle. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I'm saying? Believe me. And uh, this uh, who you trust and don't trust, uh, let's be real. Political and moral trust is rooted in principle. What does the person stand for? What are their values? You know, like Martin Luther King talked about, a complete life. Complete life. You know, and that's the way that's the way the ordinary people think about things like this. You know, we could see them, you know, as we're talking here, we're holding classes, people seem to be working and coming through, listening to every word we say. As they should. They want to know. People want to know. I guess the last thing I'm going to talk about, my story, is Joe Biden Democracy Summit. Now, <laughs> I'm almost about to fall on the floor, cracking my sides and laughter. Joe Biden and democracy? Joe Biden, do you know who Joe Biden is? Well, I'll just start with the Crime and Anti-Terrorism Bill of 1994, which led to the imprisonment and bringing under the control of the criminal justice system more than one-fourth of young men in the African-American community. Some people say, well, oh, they, they just locked them up and then they got out of jail. Yeah. But what you did, in effect, a lot of the disruption and impoverishment of the black community is that you took out of it young working class men who could have been productive parents, fathers, workers. So you say, well, they, well, they, they broke the law. Oh, yeah, but you wrote the law in such a way that targeted them. In other words, the anti-crime bill of 1994 was, in effect, an anti-crack bill. And if you, if, if you sell powder cocaine, uh, you get two months. If you sell crack or had crack in your possession and were uh, uh, convicted three times, you can get life imprisonment. But the fact of the matter is, no other community experienced this horrific situation, and we're still paying for it. That's why I'm down with what Eddie said. Who is responsible? So Joe Biden, okay, he's brain dead. I, I admit it. The man is losing brain cells, you know, faster than, you know, I mean, you know, cells reproduce, and then when you lose them fast, and then you reproduce them, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> Boyfriend is in deep trouble. <laughs> I can't feel any sense of empathy for it because he's dirty. He is dirty. He is filthy. Filthy. See, back in his days, you see him shuffling along all like that, can't walk, can't put a sentence, you don't halfway know what he's saying. Everything is teleprompter and all that. Well, back in his day, oh, 
look from the little state of Delaware. First of all, you don't represent nobody. Secondly, who you do represent at a credit card company. <laughs> this guy, back in his day, was a terror. You know, uh, arrogant. You know, he was the new uh, Ted Kennedy. You know, he's Irish, Catholic, drinks hard liquor, you know, womanized. But here is the quintessential kleptocrat. <clears throat> he is in office to steal for his brother, his sister, his son Hunter. Ain't nobody forgot. No. So he's shuffling along now, frail, the good, the good grandfather. No, he's dirty. He did things to people, horrible things. And and just like Bill and Hillary Clinton, I don't have no feelings for them. Bill Clinton? <laughs> Bill Clinton, do you know who this man is? See, and once you go to that anti-crime bill, and then right behind that, the welfare reform bill. This is a Democrat, so-called liberal. You understand where I'm coming from? And then Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama destroyed Libya? No, no, no feeling. There is no lesser to evil in that situation. Or if you're going to do that, they might be the evil. Right. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? When you, when you really, and this Joe knows, when, when you study it and you look at, there's no hiding place mm -hmm. for them. Terrible. Now he's going to come out and perpetrate a fraud on the world <laughs> as a democratic summit? democracy, and we're defending democracy against authoritarianism? See, you know, <laughs> I don't mind a cat, you know, coming to me. Um, you know, you got a lot of hustlers. <laughs> you live in life, you, you know, you run into hustlers. And a hustler, you know, a hustler might not be a bad person. It's just a person trying to make ends me and trying to separate you from your money. <laughs> 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 and see, a hustle always tell you like this, fair exchange is no robbery. <clears throat> but you don't know what the fair exchange is. But hustlers are hustlers. You know, um, a lot of times a hustler, you know, shoots crap, pool player. You know, a hustler usually does not have a job. But it's all right. You understand? For all kinds of reasons. Maybe that person didn't learn to read good enough in school, so he can't fill out an application. You know, so he goes to street life and street hustling. Okay. But one thing that a hustler always tries to do is insult your intelligence. I could take somebody lying to you. 
but don't try to insult my intelligence. Right, right. Joe And then you got these two freaks, this Jake Sullivan. And I always say, look like that cat from the movie Halloween, standing over your bed with a knife. You know, he's only 44. I mean, you wouldn't know it if I didn't tell you. Sad look. And just, just nasty. You get a cat like this. You know, you come up what to do. Down on everybody. And he wants you know, direct the world. I, I represent the government of the United States, so y'all need to get back and all that. <laughs> then you get this other cat, not Anthony, Anthony. <laughs> Gotta keep it English. <laughs> I mean, it's insulting to your intelligence, a democratic summit. But everybody knows what it is. It's a front for preparation for war. It's a front for the preparation for war. I listened to Biden's speech. Now, you know, Vladimir Putin is a very brilliant man. Xi Jinping is very brilliant. But they have a, a cadre of brilliant people. One thing about these emerging states like China, of a lot of very, very smart people. It's not a kleptocracy. You know what I'm saying? Because one thing in China they will do, they will lock you up if they catch you. And they do have the death penalty for stealing from the state. They still do have that. Now, you know, I'm not going to get into the merits of the death penalty. I'm just saying in China they have that. So if, you, if you're thinking about stealing, you got to think about it. So it's not a kleptocracy. The possibilities of a genuine human democracy exist in China, believe me. And to the extent that Putin and the forces around him have saved the Russian state because what it was supposed to become is a puppet regime of the West. I mean, something that Russia for over a thousand years had never become and had fought against. The Napoleonic Wars, Tolstoy, War and Peace. What is it about? Saving Russia, the soul of Russia. That's what Putin represents. But he's brilliant. Now you get these guys, and then you get you know, brain dead. It's, you know what I'm saying? So, and then you get Sullivan and Blinken thinking they super slick. And then, oh, here is the most evil one of Victoria Nuland. I'm not even going to mention Samantha Power. Humanitarian intervention. All right, you got to kill all my leaders. That was humanitarian right. to liberate the women of my country. Right. Yeah, right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's a lie. Just one last thing. I don't know how many people. I think um, I think Jerry, you may have watched. I think you may have watched John. 
this um, discussion between Judith Butler, Cornell West, and Glenn um, doing well. I don't know how many people watched it. I couldn't watch it all. First of all, the topic is so trivial, given everything going on in the world, that it was a waste of brain power to even conduct such a, a nonsensical thing. The other thing about it is that outside of Greenwald in certain ways, they were unable to establish the context for the rise of identity politics and cancel culture. Cornell came close to it, talked about neoliberalism, but not, I mean, he was more concerned, and this is a problem, I love Cornell, he performed too much for the white elite. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I mean, let's get to the point. I don't have to have a quote of uh, William James writing to John Dewey. Okay, you know that. Right. I'm impressed. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Let's get to the real. What is this and what, are, what is the political motivation ideological motivation for it. Judith Butler, who is supposed to be the greatest living philosopher. <laughs> I'm about ready to be picked up off the floor from laughter, but. <laughs> it was, I mean, she was so superficial with the appearance. See, this is, this is the thing appearance and reality, mm -hmm. the appearance of sophistication and profundity. You dig what I'm saying? I can, you know, I've been trained over the last 50 some or more years on how to drop the right word at the right time <laughs> in the right sentence to make you think that I'm really deep. Right. So the average person looking at it say, well, wow. <laughs> I mean, she's kicking. <laughs> but it was, I didn't watch the end of it. I, and I intend to watch the whole thing. I was i was told by Raju and Nundasba and Jeremiah and everybody, Doc, did you watch it? I said, I ain't watched it yet. The topic didn't interest me. I'm not interested in a rehash of identity politics. You know, a bourgeois, uh, ideology that does not is not identified as bourgeois ideology. That's what makes, you know, it's so troubling. You know, okay, if you want to do it, connect it to the dominant forces in the ruling class. Why did they allow it out here like this? Why did capitalism become woke in 2020? when it wasn't woke all of all 400 years. So now we woke. Why is Ibram Kendi a pseudo-intellectual if there ever was one? You know, paraded around, and his book is required reading in the CIA. <laughs> I mean, okay, so you, you go walk around here like you so black, and I know I'm even <laughs> you blacker than black, and you down with the left Asante. Well, if you all that, why is why is your book required reading in the CIA? Right. 
what is this whole thing all about? Right. What is the 1619 Project coming out of, of all places, the New York Times? I can see if, you know, if a group of professors may be at Howard University, you know, or even at, you know, a white college, mm. you know, because professors are liable to come up with anything. They specialize in anything <laughs> but the real. If you, if you say, well, that, that's why you all feel so alienated. You say, well, you, you're talking like you all that. You're coming into class and you got the hippest, got your, your jeans all tore up and, you know, like got that look. You understand? <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? You're so hip. Uh, you sitting on the desk. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you all let, if you so down, well, step to the ruling class. Yeah. I mean, if you all, if you so, you know, hip, you listen to only the most radical hip hop, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, uh, yada, yada, yada. And anybody that critiques hip hop, you ready to go to blows with them. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, hometown, step to the ruling class. Oh, no, I can't do that because I have to get my identity established first. <laughs> and for all the LGBTQs in the house, I want you to know that I'm down with y'all. Right. Except for the LGBTQs in the homeless shelter. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm down with the elites of the LGBTQs. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I'm down with, L I've been down with LGBTQs all my life because I grew up in the church with the LGBTQ. <laughs> but this, this identity politics distorts all human aspirations for democracy and progress. And I listened to that, and you know, Cornell, and I, I, I said to Rajiv, you know, because he asked me, I said, look, man, because Cornell talked about American imperialism and Chinese imperialism. Right there, right, everything else you said after that was nullified. That one statement, because you had thus established that you were positioned on the side of American imperialism. There is no Chinese imperialism. What is the evidence of it? Well, first of all, what is what do you call imperialism? You know, what is your definition of imperialism? Now, there are books written on it, the scientific treatises, finance, capital, the open, I mean, however you want to roll. But just don't be throwing words out. And then going behind that, then you're going to quote a letter that William James wrote to John Dewey. It's obscurantism. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In a time where people need ideological clarity, you know, when people need ideological clarity, um, there's something else I want to say. Okay, that, that's just, okay, I talked to you, but, <laughs> but Michelle asked that I talk about some updating <laughs> before we get, unless, anybody want to say anything? No, go ahead, uh, Jay. I, I, well, I feel like, you tell you, I feel like you're on, you're on a roll a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Jake, I'll say this. If you can't see 
humor and absurdity in a lot of these people. It's like the emperor without clothes, you know. And and one of you know one of the things you know just because I'm older than you all and been around, seeing this so many times, I try to establish through sarcasm and I guess I don't I'm not too I don't know the difference between sar sarcasm and satire. I get <laughs> forgive me, but to show that the emperor has no clothes, that what they're talking about is hollow. That, that's all. That's why I have a, a kind of a humor with it. I'm sorry. No, it's understandable. I mean, they well, call it gallows humor sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> that's an idea. I will say, um, I like what you said about the zeitgeist. Um, and I like that um, because there is a zeitgeist that it, it's, it's almost like driving black people like to kill themselves. And that's what the state wants. The state yeah. wants all black people killed. You know, it, it comes out in, in, um, in the ghetto and in, in Iran and in Iraq and in China. They want, you know, they, they, I mean, if they can't have you as a slave, they don't want you at all. You know, to kind of put it like that. Um, I feel like, see, one thing I, I always try to understand, um, like why, or I talk to people like why killing happens, or you know, like why you listen to the music that has a killer, you know, talks about all the killing. And you know, I started there because when I had that conversation, conversation with a friend, he had told me that he, you know, he know he listens to that music because he knows people that have that goes through stuff like that, which brings it to that that moment where. Um, Black, where black people are in, or see what happens is there's a mindset. There's, there's, a, there's something that kind of takes over, you know, uh, when, when someone's pride is pushed so far. You know, I think I, I, I'm having difficulty kind of articulating it. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that when it becomes everybody else, you know, uh, when, you're, when, you're mad, when you're so mad at the world, you know, you, you, know, you, you take it. And you uh, drive that that hatred that um, the ruling class has you know, taught you to, you know, have to have that self hatred. You you bring out on other people, um, and I mean, you just see it. You just see it. Like, you know, uh, you know, I talked about it before on Instagram. Like, people getting like killed. You know what I mean? Um, and first of all, what that does to someone like someone who sees it, what it does, what it does to a civilization that you know has to like watch people get like like from around the corner being killed. And then what it does to like them, like uh, those people themselves. Um, I feel like uh, it is it is a zeitgeist. And I see, but what I see, what I'm trying to articulate is what I see, um, like a a a a, 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 um, a problem that in the mindset, like people when people talk about uh, problems that they're having, they never they don't talk about themselves and their role in their problem. You know what I mean? Um, they talk more so like he did this to me, or he did this, or they, they did that. And I feel like that again, that comes back to like the, the importance of like Baldwin, you know, uh, the importance of taking responsibility for one's own action. Um, because I feel like you know we'll never really be able to do anything with anybody if nobody can understand what they can do for themselves. Um, and because it's like. Because we can, I mean, we can preach ideology all day, but we're not really talking about the same thing because you never really, because you never really understand where somebody's coming from. Um, and so, because like, there's different, there's different pieces 
there's different pieces I feel that are involved. Um, I feel that you know black people killing themselves plays into the stereotype um, or gives or lends credence to black people needing to be saved. You know what I mean? Or you know uh, like the Iranian women or the uh, Afghani women. Like that just that's just the same the same force that Baldwin describes that okay black people need to be saved or the dark people of the world need to be saved and that's a moral justification you know um, for these. NGO programs for these, you know, humanitarian uh, pro programs, they need to be safe, you know. Um, but what's happening, I feel, is that Black people's, because because Bowman describes two forces in evidence of uh, in his book, evidence of things not seen. He describes the one force, the white force of of the world, you know, that that idea that I was talking about, that I didn't need to be safe. The other force is that you know, Black people have nothing to lose. You know what I mean? You take, you take, you take, you take. We don't, we don't have anything to lose. And that I feel, uh, personally, politically. However, I, I think as a people, we don't have anything to lose. But we're turning that against ourselves. I think that's where that gun violence is coming out or coming out at. Um, we're turning it against it's it being a purpose against ourselves. And so we don't. And then, can I ask you a question? Yeah. You say black people have nothing to lose. Yeah. I would say that black people have a lot to lose. Mm -hmm. A lot to lose. I mean, that's that's. But well, why would you say have nothing to lose? In terms of what was taken. Yeah. In terms of the history of degradation. Think about that. In terms of the history of degradation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I I guess what I'll say is, yeah. I think that you know what has to happen is. There's, there's that, like, uh, what has to, like, and this, like, I kind of get to when we talk about the Winston, but it's, you know, the, like, the, the, the combination of personal responsibility and ideology. I can as, 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 you know, as, uh, but I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, I, I hear you very clearly. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, that, that was, like, kind of theoretical. I don't know. If no, 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 no. It's, I hear you. Um, go ahead, Dan. Well, I think it's a question of, you jump off what Jake said and also, uh, your presentation or whatever to through the phone for us begin. How would we have a kind of productive conversation about the question of the police? So on the one hand, you mentioned mm -hmm. like last summer, for example, the people who were saying to fund the police, fund the police, the same people that were just, you know, blowing up buildings in impoverished neighborhoods and stuff like that. These were the same people who would say to fund the police. And it's like hard to take them seriously. It's like, oh, you're going to bring more violence upon these neighborhoods. You also mentioned as well, like the Joe Biden bill. And of course, this thing happened under a, oh, we want more police to protect our neighborhoods. Hillary Clinton can call people super predators. Mm -hmm. They call young black men super predators. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the question is, how does one have been a productive question about um, the police? Because, you know, the, it, Lenin, right? The state revolution. Absolutely. Like that. So I just want to, that's a question. Yeah, no, and it, yeah. it has to be put on the table. Yeah. And it's again the question of transition from what we have to what must become. Yeah. But uh, I don't think that anyone would get much support for calling for anarchistically the collapse of all institutions of society in the name of freedom. Sure. Yeah. You know, that's that idea, Jake, freedom from <laughs> that negative freedom. So, you know, there, there, 
many things that people have called for over the years, uh, including um, uh, community control, community uh, control, uh, reforming the police, uh, a number of things within the framework of a bourgeois <coughs> legal situation. There's anything wrong with that? No, there's yeah. nothing yeah. wrong with that. And, uh, but we, yeah, you, you, know, you see the problem. And this idea that that would get support from the black community, it was met with complete outrage in the black community, you know? Uh, I think mean, my opinion on this uh, issue is that the state, that the prisons have become such a burden on the state, the state is trying to let go Absolutely. of that population. Right. Uh, especially so they privatize prisons also. Exactly. And that's the thing is, is, is mm -hmm. instead of prisons, it becomes more benevolent, like, oh, HP will fund collars that you wear at home, and oh, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> You're in jail, but you're in your home, yeah. and you know you're you're free. But you're really not. There's yeah. a GOS, and then HP and Amazon will benefit. Yeah. And the the. the oh, these are made by Amazon. Mm -hmm. Those are made by Amazon. I'm sure they will oh, be. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the uh, Amazon is big data, so they will be collecting the data and you'll comply. You would trust Amazon to do that for HP. HP does it for the fishermen in Gaza. Um, HB does it at the border um, for for illegal immigrants, but the defund the police movement is going to run into uh, basically running alongside the ruling class and what it wants in private in the continuing the privatization of prisons. That's your question. What the ruling class wants that formulation? Do you think the ruling class? in this crisis knows what it wants. <laughs> I mean, I think sometimes we might give them, when we say the ruling class, we're not just talking about the billionaires, but those who serve their interests, which is much larger, runs into the millions of bureaucrats, intellectuals. Do you think they know what they want? That's tough, but I think- yeah. I mean, they know they want to stay in power, yeah. but how to do that, I think they're incompetent. That, I that's what I'm. Well, also, I, I think I think the number one thing that they want is to maintain control. But I mean, you could blame it on incompetence, but also the uh, the reality is that the it's the contradictions that they're facing are so immense. Yeah, it's becoming harder and harder for them to maintain control. I mean, it's like a I don't know, like a person like in the rodeo or something trying to stay on the <laughs> trying to stay on the bull, you know? Yeah, because. It, it, because the contradictions are so immense, they're much more immense, like you're saying, than they were back, you know, Absolutely. even 20 years ago, mm -hmm. let alone 50 mm -hmm. years ago. Um, and particularly the uh, ruling elite in this society, the challenge that they're facing from the world is so immense. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And the system which they have uh, is it's struggling to maintain itself, also because of the fact that the historic pillars that they had those are crumbling. I mean, the fact that the support from the white working class, mm -hmm. the entire, all the benefits they're able to give the white working class, have the white working class function in uh, essence as a pillar of the system uh, is, uh, I mean, that that's no longer tenable. And you're having mass resistance, mass revolt among the white working class. Similarly, even um, uh, societies and elites of other countries, which were also allies in the United States, and in effect served as pillars 
those are also no longer willing to go along with the U.S. relief. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the, the fact the financial system, the economic system, like like this inflation, for example, I mean, it shows that the elite may not even understand how <laughs> political economy works, you know? You know, because on one hand, Biden is like, oh, we've reached the peak of inflation. Right. On the other hand, you're getting other forecasts from the Federal Reserve and other experts. The record and, inflation. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, I mean, I mean, all that is showing that the number one thing is to maintain control, but it's becoming very challenging. I mean, I don't envy them being in their mm. position personally. I just want to, like, bounce off this question again because I don't know the answer, but uh, yeah, it's curious because there's inflation, something that the ruling class is, has their eye on and they understand and that's what he's saying. They don't. Or, but what if it's intentional and oh, the hand is just, you know, when the Snowden uh, files were released, there was that slideshow about manipulating society and people. And one of them was the big move covers the little move, uh, you know, repeated persistence, reduces vigilance. And this is if you're trying to persuade someone or groups mm -hmm. of people. And, uh, you know, so I always wonder, does the big move cover the little move? And, you know, how vigilant do we have to be? But, like, so is this just, is this a mistake? Or is this the left hand distracting this? And so I just want to reiterate, I don't, I don't know. That's the question I think about. Well, we do know that with this, like, record inflation, there has been, a, I think, also a record transfer of wealth upwards. But at the same time that they may not know how to control the inflation or may not want to control the inflation. The, I mean, the money is being redistributed upwards, um, but but again, that goes to maybe controlling control and greed. But like, I don't know, but if, if they can, you know, it's like Eddie said with uh, the CPI, the inflation that we're talking about does not include the inflation from stocks, and securities, and real estate. So there was inflation, and it was intentional. It just didn't wasn't intentional to go to the CPI, the consumer uh, goods. But it was intentional to go to the stock market. I, I just wanted to ask if you could say more about the interior transition. Of transition? And how to <laughs> 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 He's a Danny. I'm a I'm not, I mean, now we in the communist movement spoke about transitions. I don't know, and Danny, anybody else can help me on this. I'm not aware, although I, if you asked me this 20 years ago, I may have said Lenin's theory of transition, but I'm not convinced that he had a theory of transition. And the reason I say that, uh, if you look at the objective conditions of Russia at the time of the Russian Revolution, it was an autocracy. It was a uh, it was anti-democratic. The overthrow of the Tsar was the result of a combination of things, including a war that was ruining the country, starving the people, especially the peasantry, uh, killing their sons, and, um, and people massively 
pointed the finger at the czar. So this king or this Caesar, who everybody thought that all the peasants bowed down to him because he was God's representative on earth along with the, the church, yada, 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 turned out they weren't that invested in him. And they rose up and he had to abdicate. Almost similarly to what happened, what, seven, six years earlier in China, where this ancient, oh, by the way, parenthesis, why I don't like, I like it less these days, the idea of a civilization state. We were talking, uh, I know that's a big thing with, uh, uh, with some people, but, but anyway, so the question, you could say it's a, a theory of transition. Lenin's question was, how do you get from a bourgeois, ineffective government that would not end the war and therefore could not solve the other social problems affecting the peasantry and workers? How do you get from that to a government of the people, a government of Bolsheviks and others? who were truly committed to really not socialism so much as to a democratic dispensation. I don't consider that a theory of transition. We, however, can develop theories of transition. I think a theory of transition is just what it says. How do you get from where we are to a where something more broadly democratic. And that, that's what's on the table for us. That's what's on the table for us. We can call it a theory of transition. We can call it um, whatever, theory of a new democracy. Go ahead, Dan. Well, the way that I, because I, I agree, boy, personally, everything I said was good, but you know, said I, I agree, because I usually try to think of it in terms of a crisis. Yeah. So the reason why you kind of can't have this like a static theory of transition is because the crisis can change in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so obviously, we're it's not February 1917 and it's Russia right now. It's 2021 December in America. It's a different thing. And so something that was brought up is we can say that the ruling class rules, but they don't govern. And this goes back to the discussion you had last week about democracy. I mean, yes, they are just kind of concerned about preserving their power, mm -hmm. and they'll do whatever to try to maintain that. And if it has effects on other people, especially this administration, mm -hmm. the Biden administration, mm -hmm. I don't want to curse, but yeah, yeah, I know I they don't give do. a like about them. people. Right? Like, <laughs> they really don't. Anyway. And so they're like, we're just going to try to maintain, you know, this kind of preservation of our ideological. Sorry, and. Good luck, everybody else, or something like that. And that's why this question of inflation, they're like, we need to get certain parts of the economy back, the ones we care about. And if it spills over into more expensive milk and eggs and gasoline for everybody else, that's your own problem. And you're probably complaining about your white privilege. Or something like that. Yeah, right. Well, that's it now. Because you know what you did, brother?
the way that I approach it is there's a problem, there's a contradiction, and the question is, it doesn't actually resolve, but how do you get people to adapt to the new mode or whatever? And that could just be also apathy. And that's why it comes back to this question that I think Jake was articulating earlier is how do people maybe adapt to things? There's no point, nihilism. Well, that's right, yeah. But interestingly, the signs are that the majority of American people are not adapted. Right, right. right. You know, that, that's the positive thing. I think, you know, <laughs> you, you all have to, I feel that we're swimming in really good waters. I mean, when I say we, we the free school, I don't feel that we're out in, way out in left field or somewhere. We're closer to the people than, you know. Yeah, well, on that point of, about a, about a month ago, there was a, a poll done by Pew, mm -hmm. uh, well, it was in October, uh, and it said that uh, they, they were polling uh, Americans, and 85% of Americans polled uh, on the question of the American political system said that either the system needs, quote, to be completely reformed or needs major changes. And then about 66%. Uh, the question is, what's the difference between completely Middle East, only South Africa, 
but Middle East, there's only two countries that attended, and uh, the rest of Asia, also very few countries. So, it, I mean, it shows the fact that uh, the world is telling uh, the American elite they no longer have a monopoly on what democracy means. I and mean, that's also what uh, people in China are saying, the Chinese officials, that democracy is not like Coca-Cola. It's not a brand that's owned by the United States. You know, and we can say the same thing about development. We can say the same thing about uh, a lot of a lot of issues. Um, and so maybe we maybe we need to come up with new language. I don't know if it's between unipolar, multipolar, new. Well, my, my, my point was that to talk about unipolar, multipolar is not to address the question of the change in the relationship of force. Right, right. That the United States is not just now sharing the world with China and Russia and other countries, yeah. but the United States is in free fall. Right, right, absolutely. Free fall. And, and it's going to get worse given the political consequences of inflation, which we we'll come back to. Go, go ahead, uh, Jared. I'm uh, Jared. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the funniest and ironic thing about the democracy summit, where the illuminating thing is that most Americans either don't know what's happening yeah. or literally don't care. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> uh, it was all virtual. Yeah. They're doing a live stream. It's like 70 people watching the live stream. No one cares. You can't find it. Yeah. yeah. 70 people. Yeah. Like, seven, yeah. Like, yeah. The UN got more views. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. The UN itself is pretty boring. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel like whether there's there's a lot of actually where like it's kind of like the same dynamic where it's, whether it's inflation or the crime thing, it's like the, it's almost like the elite they just need to. It's almost like the thing that they need to do is reassure themselves. You know, I feel like that's right, also what Biden right, right. It's not even for the American people. It's right. so that the ruling class can reassure themselves of like, oh yeah, at least like some people still look to the U.S. and we can still basically like drum up all these people who will be on their side. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like, how can you just lie so blatantly? Like, oh no, like Biden was like, yeah, inflation's not falling as, as quickly as we'd like. And literally inflation is rising at the highest rate that it's risen in like half a century, you know? And also for someone like Krasner, if he says, yeah, like we don't have a crime problem, stuff like that. But um, yeah, I mean, it also reminded me of the, the the debate with uh, Glenn Greenwald and Judith Butler and Cornel West, where it really felt like, like especially Judith Butler, like it didn't really seem like she had thought going through her mind. <laughs> you know, like it was almost like she was kind of just like a, a generator of things that you know people say in academia. Like you have no real thoughts going, and Cornel West, like like I feel like it's slightly different, but also it's similar in that people just now, nowadays, I feel like people just kind of tune into Cornell West because they want to hear Cornell West say Cornell West things. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And um, yeah, and really this thing about like like the question of journalism, like Julian Assange, but also the intellectual, like the role of those types of institutions should be to like reveal reality to the people. And instead, the whole like the mode of operation is actually this. To either obscure or to just conceal yeah. and to basically see what you can get in there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was just it was just pretty funny that, and also very telling of I guess where we are that like 
literally no, none of the American people care about <laughs> like basically pre presenting America as you know like the model of democracy. And um, it was interesting because um, I still watch Dr. Carlson sometimes, and yeah. he had a really interesting segment a few weeks ago where. Like, I guess it is true that you can't really say that America is exactly the same as, like, what Russia was before, like, the October Revolution. But even he was, like, you know, like, he was basically saying that the U.S. ruling class, like, the Biden administration, are basically, like, the Romanovs in Russia. Yeah, and he also said that they were, he compared them to Batista in Cuba. But basically, he's saying, like, that, like, he's saying that, like, for all that, that, these ruling elites try to do, there's still the element in which, yeah, like they're caught off guard. <laughs> like they're caught off guard by their own people and don't, they haven't really fully understood like what, like how their own people feel about their their rule and stuff, which, yeah, I thought was really interesting. I think if I could just, I don't mean to, you know, it's almost like the ruling class is fighting the last war. Mm -hmm. In other words, the last war domestically was to put down the black struggle. Right, right. So they were always preparing for another black uprising, you know. And here it comes from white people. And the police are not trained psychologically to brutalize and kill white people. Uh, the ruling class has no answer to a white uprising. And it is an uprising. So it's like they're fighting the last war and they're so unprepared for this. And they, if I could just say one last thing. You see, in their minds, quote unquote, you know, it is, and I put it this way, the race question. That's the, the, that the ruling class has to deal with. But they never thought that it would be the class question and the race question. See, they have, they've, they've trumped us on the race question with all the you know, BS, as you know. But here, the class question, that's why, that's the political significance of inflation. Because it has a way of uniting all working people. <laughs> I'm sorry, but go ahead. If you... <laughs> um, I, I really like the... Uh analogy that you're using of the, the story of the emperor has no clothes. And I think this really ties in, I think, what Jeremiah has been talking about this debate, which I, I did watch this debate. You watched it? And, uh, and uh, Cornel West and uh, Judith Butler. I can't remember the name of the fourth fellow. Who is Glenn Greenwald. And, you know, a lot of these ideas that, that these intellectuals have been thinking about, they're all very true, and there's a lot to be said about them. But when they're talking about things that ring hollow to most people, that's where there's that immense disconnect. Like, I think of the, the story, the emperor has no clothes. Like, you could say, if you want to believe the emperor has clothes, that he's wearing a million different things, and how shiny and beautiful each different linen and pair of jeans he has on, whatever you want to say. Most people see a naked man out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, this identity politics thing is in many ways, the United States think, okay, we have solved democracy. Right. We have solved all the social issues. Now we can move to the individual place. Right. Most of the rest of the world sees it for what it is. You're, you solve democracy? Really? That's why you have Julian Assange being tortured in prison? That's why you have to go all over the world bombing everyone because you solve democracy? Right. Right. Well, you know, 
most people in the rest of the world see it. Where is it? And an interesting point in that conversation that really struck me was a moment where uh, Cornell West was talking um, in many ways, in beautiful ways, about how the joy of struggle. And he was very, he was using a lot of socialistic ideas. But he had to couch it immediately. He said, Well, I'm not talking about bullshit. Don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about bullshit. Yes, that's what he said. And immediately, Judith Butler sat back in her seat, got to calm down a little bit, you know, because uh, <laughs> we're not talking about any idea that is representative of over two thirds of the population of the entire planet. Because that, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about that. But we'll, we'll have this idea that we have democracy. We can speak freely. He said, I'm talking about something not Bolshevism. He actually was, I, said, I'm trying to remember exactly the ideas he was talking about in that moment. But what really struck me is he was, he was talking about you know, thinking in, in more communal ways and, and yeah. a more balanced yeah. uh, economy. And But don't get me wrong. I mean, I have to go back and look yeah. at it. But he, at one point, he said, don't get me wrong. I'm definitely not talking about Bolshevism. Don't get mm -hmm. worried. I'm not, I'm not uh, going to bring up the boogeyman that we can't ever talk about. Um, yeah, and, and that's again, yeah, Henry Winston, one, one thing that struck me when he said, he put it in this language, he was speaking about the, the fascistic threat uh, that, that Germany and Italy and, and the United States posed to the rest of the world. And he said, this is the consequence of anti-communism. This is the genocidal consequence of anti-communism. And, and so what ties these two? I mean, I like Glenn Greenwald. I like Cornell West. I even like some of the things Judith Butler was saying. You know, in in her in her world, it doesn't exist. But um, you know, uh, they all are tied up in this anti-communist idea, and that is why they're acceptable for us to think of as leaders of intellect. Can I just say one thing? Because the assumption, and they always, is that communists are against democracy. Yeah. And Winston has the communists are the best fighters for democracy. That's empirically provable. It's empirically provable. Communists have never limited democracy. Well, and if you want to get in, you know, there's okay. Oh well, they limited what our our liberal understanding of democracy. Absolutely, because you can't use money to dictate what the rules are. Absolutely. So that, Absolutely. in that way, they're limiting. That's right. Democracy. And the hypocrisy of bourgeois democracy. Yeah. You know, I got the right to vote, so that means I'm free. Yes. Yeah. I have the right to give as much money as I want to the candidate structure right. and right. everything right. else. Right. Right. My my favorite moment from the debate was when I think Judith Butler started by being like, you know, I can't help but notice that there's not a black woman on this yeah. panel. Yeah. And I know everyone was like, okay, so would you like to have Kamala Harris on the panel? <laughs>
you know, we talked about this uh, dynamic of the ruling class having this uh, nihilism because of the crisis. You know, it's like, okay, now that things Trump is here, like everything is bad. Or, I don't know, some stuff that we've been talking about for a little while, I guess, uh, I guess about how, like, the ruling class is found, or not the, I'm trying to say, like, this theory is found this stuff, like, the ruling class has failed, there's something missing, I'm not quite sure of all, like, but specifically, but, um, but it's interesting about this point of, uh, communism, and I was thinking, like, Winston is so right, Winston is so needed, um, but, um, you know, I guess, I hear you, Doc, about how it is true. People want this country, you know, to be a true democracy. And I do believe that people have faith, not exactly in the government, but just like for like this country to be something. Um, but it is also like this uh, development. Though the ruling class is like in its crisis, young people, like, what is the purpose? What is it that, and you know, all this violence, all this, you know, it's like a lot of despair, drugs, you know, and it's that's that's an important point of what you said, Doc, about the family, you know what I'm saying? Just because your family's bad doesn't mean that, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, um, I have to submit. Um, you know, it seems like Jacob's question is like, why? Why Why is there that? Why is it still? And then there's the question of leadership that we talked about with King and like, how do you um, deal with that after like crack and then prison? But, um, but, you know, the thing about communism is like, and this is why I go back to like, well, the political education of people is the imperative. Because, well, it, it's not like we have to be anti-democratic, anti, you know, the values that we hold that are specifically American um, to, um, you know, understand communism or like, you know, accept it. But like that synthesis also has to happen um, with political education. Understand Winston, that Du Bois and Lenin kind of framing. But, um, you know, it feels like I hear what you're saying. There is that reality of this thing. But um, I also think it's interesting because of how, you know, people, like you're saying, Jeremiah, did not watch the Democracy Summit.
like like RT, like Jake was showing me how like, you know, there's like different stuff about that expresses a world view that looks at Russia or like China and it's just like there's a lot of reason to diss America. It's like, you know, Americans aren't doing from Americans. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, how can this um force potential, you know, be that's used? Right. That's the question. That is the question. Um well See, it, isn't yeah. it the this is what Johan was pointing yeah. out with the data. Yeah. That the that up into the 60s and 80% of the people say that this democracy has to be radically changed and so on and so forth. And here's the president of this democracy uh, lecturing the world on what democracy is. You know, you, I, you said he has no political or moral basis to even open his mouth. Right. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, I wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like that, but it was like, it's like, well, true, black people can't be anti-communist. Like, you know, they can't keep holding That's right. on. The less they are the less the least anti-communist in the population because of their deeper acuteness of the struggle for democracy. We've always known that. And peace. And peace. And, and peace. peace. Absolutely. Peace Absolutely. Peace with your brother. You That's, right. That's, That's right. That's where you get to the And could always see a yeah. similarity between themselves and other darker people. Yeah. Could yeah. always see that. And therefore, they couldn't, you know, swallow the whole line, hook, line, and sink. And I still believe without that force, without black people. Just, you know, China just, needs that too. Absolutely. You know, Russia needs this. I, I think you you're know, right. all that. I think you're right. And I, I'm, I'm just in conversation with you. You know, one of the reasons, and I was thinking about this apropos your point, because how do you explain what we have discovered is such a rich body of thinking that is Winston's book? Seem not to be on the radar. Explain these, quote, scholars of the left. Right. And they don't talk about Winston, they don't talk about, what is it? You know what I think it is, Sarah? that he was so forthright in attacking anti-communism. And you know, that's the thing, the other thing I was thinking about also kind of like this week was the organic thinker. You know what I'm saying? Like, when was it like, that's black people, that's working people regardless. You know, like. And he showed the working person the black person that you can be an intellectual. You don't have to wait to find nobody with a PhD. No. That's that's what you have to with this city. If you take down public education, yeah. if you take down all the things that kids need, uh -huh. you know, like you already had mentioned, um, you know, like what can what has emerged is like this kind of sense, this crisis thing. And I I'm coming back to the organic thing because I know that. There's still potential for people to think right now. Um, you there is. There is, just because, you know, just because, not any, like, you know, but, um, but I think that that's important, too, because we don't have to believe what the white man tells us. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I don't have to be told what to do or, like, mm -hmm. nothing like that. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. 
you know, it's just like what is morally right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what we have to go with right yeah. now. And I, it, it's difficult to see that because there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening mm-hmm. within the black community. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but there's still a sense of truth. There's still the fact that there is truth out here. And it is wrong to kill XYZ. It is wrong to drug even your white neighbor, even though he's white and you should be mad at him or whatever, or whatever. But but it's still the same thing. It comes back to that point for me about truth because I know I've, or at least from like the bus driver who expresses to me like yesterday, he was like, oh, why do you read all the time? You know, I always be on the bus. Um, reading. I'm like, well, I'm reading this book about the International Meeting of Communists and Workers in 1969. And he started talking about, to me, about some anti-communist South African professor that he had met um, way back and then advocated for something about Nelson Mandela and stuff. I was like, no, watch the Winnie Mandela documentary. Mm-hmm. She was the basis of Nelson Mandela's movement. She's what kept, you know, saying, follow eight, uh, that kind of thing. So we had that conversation, mm-hmm. but it's like I know people out here think about these questions, which is war and peace questions. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are, what, how does imperialism actually affect the working person? And is it wrong or is it right? You know? Um, so. But I don't know. I was, I was just thinking about that organic thinking because mm-hmm. I know that. The uh, university, you know, that's what I'm thinking. Like, because there's also because I've been hanging with musicians. Everyone, that's true. Coming from Berkeley, you know, mm-hmm. Temple, all that. But it's like, but it's like you have skills. But where is the impetus for what it is that you're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and artists have to come to that question and really kind of think about the responsibility, you know of what it is that they're, they, who they are in society. <laughs> and that's the same thing goes with everybody else, but, um, yeah, I'm not talking about, okay, let's play blues music. I'm saying like, okay, let's get down to struggle. Let's get down close to the people. I understand what, what we need right now, you know? That as maybe that Sorry. we transition into the discussion of all the groups in the free school. And would it be all right if we started with W.E.B. Du Bois Baldwin, and then we go to, and then we go to, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Raju, and, uh, and then we go to MIT, and then we uh, circle, oh, then we go to uh, Sophie and, um, Nathan, and then we circle back to um, Van Damme, Lotus. We do it that way? Yeah. Okay. Be it loud. Oh, be it loud. Be it loud. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we do be it loud after we do um, W.E.B. Du Bois Baldwin? So go ahead, whoever you want to start with. Sure. Um, so thanks for having us again. Um, Today we're going to describe the development um, of Henry Winston, of the Henry Winston Project. Um, and 
Yeah, we, we rehashed it, so I'll talk to you short. Um, but, uh, you know, Serafina found Henry Winston. How? The world doesn't, we may never know. No, I, I don't remember how you came to it, but um, uh, I read it last time. Oh, but no, how you came back to it in that February, in that context for February. So, um, uh, but over the course of the last seven, uh, nine months, we've been reading Henry Winston and reflecting then. Yeah, I know. It's been almost a year of, of, of us studying Henry Winston. Um, and I feel that um, uh, one of the big takeaways um, from Henry Winston was that he helps us uh, or helped us, I forgot how I put it yesterday, but he helped us deal with this question that I, I thought, you know, or the one I think the preschool is trying to attempt to um, deal with, is how can the free school's uh, ideological framework mold uh, the American essence um, into what it's supposed to be, that of freedom, democracy, and peace. Um, and I feel that Henry Winston does this um, through, I think he plays a tremendous role as a revolutionary um, through being able to describe, because his goal is unity. So he, he, what, is, what he does through his critique is through his um, investigation um, of the ruling class is he uh, describes how the ruling class is um, dividing um, and so in class race and black liberation, um, we have, we have, we have different questions to kind of get to, um, but in class race and black liberation, um, I'd actually like to, um, uh, just name a couple of chapters and say how they were important, um, to the development, you know, cause you know, we had gone through it perhaps too quickly. Um, but you know, what Henry Winston, uh, he looks at the race question, and he looks at uh, the different ideological questions uh, that the ruling class is imposing on people. Um, this was especially profound for me on a personal level because of the Moynihan doctrine, um, the idea that you know it's the fault of the black family that black people are being exploited, uh, that they're in the conditions that they're in, which you know you just say it like that, it doesn't make any more sense. Um, and I feel that. Um, I feel that um, uh, this is incredibly, this is why I, I say that I leave that question like how to uh, mold the American essence or, and, and I'm trying to find a better way to articulate that, you know, or so like put that more concrete. Um, but because he is able to say, like able to challenge uh, the basis out of which people are carrying out political struggle. People are carrying out political struggle ideologically through by saying like, uh, oh, well, you know, that's on the family. You know, the family structure has to be better. There's no black fathers in the house. All the black fathers are gone, you know? And that's how they're thinking about a political struggle because they're trying to deal with this question of gun violence or they're trying to deal with this question of education. Okay, well, the father's not there to tell the son or the whoever to go to school. That's the problem. And not the fact that the father was taken out of the house, that the, that the, that the, that the guns are placed in the neighborhood, that the cocaine and the crack is placed in the neighborhood, that the, the houses are going to be gentrified, that, you know, uh, K&A exists and exists to devalue um, um, that area, but gentrification can happen, so on 
yada, 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 yada. It's a black father. It's a black family. Um, thank you. <laughs> and um, so there's different things. <laughs> um, there's different uh, things you kind of bring to the table. Um, and I, I think I would like to read or just state um, maybe two, two more chapters that I'd like to um, kind of look at. And then we can kind of go project or whatever. And uh, so the one is the ethnicity, uh, Monopoly's racist strategy. Um, I like this chapter a lot. Um, it was very short. It was like four or five pages. Um, but it was, I thought it was just like, boom, because in the ethnicity uh, uh, strategy, for Monopoly's racist strategy, you know, what it does, and he puts it pretty clear, you know, uh, it, it raises one group of people up, um, incentivizes that group of people, so as to pit uh, you know, uh, the different uh, people that America, the monopoly is explaining against each other. So for example, you know, they would, let's say like, they would, um, monopoly would raise up Northern Ireland to pit Northern Ireland against Ireland. You know what I mean? If this comes out today in identity politics, let's, uh, let's put up uh, the queer, black, queer, X, Y, and Z, you know, and then uh, the quote racists are against the queer movement, against the da 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 and then that monopoly gets away with every crime it's ever committed. All the war crimes in the name of humanitarianism. Um, and so, I, I mean, and, 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 and this also deals with this um, American essence that we're um, kind of um, at each other's, at, we, 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 we move toward uh, uh, being at each other's throats first uh, before dealing with the conditions that, were, uh, that are in front of us before questioning like, okay, well, why is this happening in the first place? Like, why am I against you? Happened yesterday to me at work. Like, we was, my, me and my coworker are arguing, but we're both, first of all, being included. And um, we're, you know, they're both keeping us later than we need to be playing. Um, the other thing, um, the other uh, chapter uh, that I would like to, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good. <laughs> you know, everyone can copy steps, you know? <laughs> um, Huh? Yeah, right, right, you know. Um, but the other chapter is the um, the nature of the white and black relationship, I think. One of these two chapters was the fallacy of the internal colony. Um, the idea there being that the white population um, is ultimately the, uh, exactly, a classless, you know, without, and all, all white people are ultimately the enemy. This, and this is precisely the problem. Black people can, cannot progress um, what Harry Winston, this is the important thing that Harry let's get, I want to get to the W.E.B. support, you know, how this all relates to you all. Yeah. Okay. Um, Go ahead. I, okay, okay. I, but, I mean, I, it, this relates to us um, because it's giving us, like I said last week, I think uh, the Henry Winston Project sets an ideological precedent for us. And it sets an ideological precedent for us because it's giving us new ways of struggle. Um, and, and I think, you know, Serafina has said to me that, you know, Henry Winston um, moved us in a direction, kind of paraphrase, moved us in a direction um, uh, that, you know, and pushed us uh, towards something um, where, I don't want to say his voice wasn't, but in a way that was much more present, like we could see Black Lives Matter. And I feel that um, the Henry, that the reading group grew uh, in terms of its ability to struggle ideologically and to move people closer to the Saturday preschool 
through ideas like um, the nature of the white-black relationship or through ethnicity. Um, and so I think ultimately, um, in that way, it will. Uh, the concept of synthesis. Synthesis. Very important. Yeah. So, so Winston's ideas helped us to interrogate the movements of our time and gave us a way to critique those um, that we didn't, we didn't have before. But not only his ideas. But the way he developed his ideas and his character, the example of his life, were also, I think, very important to the development of, of what we wanted to show with the Winston Symposium. Um, and the quote that I come back to, I haven't been with it that long, a couple months, I guess, but um, we drink from the fountain of knowledge from whatever source. We do that for the natural sciences. Why not for the social sciences? That has been pivotal for me and how I think and how I talk to people about it. Um, uh, and just as an example, um, my brother and I don't always see politically eye to eye, but I invited him to the symposium and he, he came to that person. And I was so glad to see him hear Winston and to get to talk to him about those ideas. Um, and, and I'm still thinking about what we talked about as we were walking back to the bus. Um, um, and that that quote is so pivotal. That way to approach ideas and people is so important because um, it's very easy to see someone you disagree with mm -hmm. and to say I can't learn from anything they have, or see someone you agree with and say um, they can say no wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what Winston says and the way he developed his ideas is this beautiful synthesis. It's very dialectical, I think, where you can talk to a, a Trump voter, you can watch Tucker Carlson and say, uh, you can understand them and say this, you can evaluate what they're saying for truth and then incorporate that truth into a greater understanding of the world. And uh, it's on a very personal level. I think that's been uh, a huge development for me. Yeah, I mean, I really, I think I just want to reiterate a few points that you guys have made, which is just is, is how critical his ideas, his organic ideas were, and his humanness, which I think is ultimately connected to those ideas. Um, I felt like as I, as I read his work and studied his, his life, I, I saw the, the spirit of a life that's dedicated to the child. Dedicated uh, to, to the child, to the, ch uh, the immortal child. Mm -hmm. that's just long to it. You know, the future of humanity, um, and um, and you know, um, I mean, this idea of principled unity, the importance and the centrality of principled unity. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because growing up, I, I was always taught that you know you need to compromise. Of compromise is the most important thing, and, and to Blaze's point, we need to be able to hear and learn from people we may disagree with on certain things. But there is an essence we need to agree on. Um, and um, I mean, uh, like, if we don't have that, whatever unity we have is not going to be very substantial and not long-lasting. Um, um, yeah, this, this, this uh, making difficult compromise but holding firm ideological lines. Mm -hmm. um, this, is, this is not 
capitulation. Yes. Right. Say it one more time. Synthesis. Synthesis is not capitulation. Yes. 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 Um, seeing things in their totality. Um, you know, this idea of separating the sin from the sinner is an idea I, I get from his work, although he doesn't say that explicitly, but just you know, taking the ideas and remembering that people are people, you know. Uh, the violence is perpetuated by, you know, an extreme right-wing person who's in an impoverished situation. I mean, that's that's a desperate person. That's not, you know, that's not someone who's using their full capacities as a human being. Um, and so we shouldn't condemn any particular marginalized group of society this way. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, just being deeply engaged with the ideas of our time and not taking any particular idea on its face value, really interrogating and being deliberate about, about you know, these ideas. Um, and, it, and as upsetting as a lot of them are in the history of art, I feel like he had sort of an endless hope for people at the same time. As critical as he was of the ideas, he, he he really I mean just just the way he he um, organized and went about his life really spoke to a deeper sense of hope for humanity. And I don't think he lived a life the way he did, and and without that uh, part of your your psyche. Um, um, and, and one one thing that I I keep coming back to in my mind is, as I was doing the work was you know why why is it that I have to do this? You know, why me? Why it, it's a lot of more easier ways I can be spending my time, um, and why is no one else doing this? You know, I, I, uh, it was a struggle, you know, and it humbled me in many ways. Um, but, but the more I did, the more the other question, the reverse of that is, why does this need to be done? Mm -hmm. um, and in this way, I kind of changed the, my, the way I was thinking from an exclusive, selfish way to a more inclusive version of myself, so that self attached to this you know, rooted to this larger historical thing that we call humanity. Um, and, uh, and I mean, that's another reason I'm glad to be taught by you. I mean, you learned from him, he learned from the boys and others, and there's this, there's this, this importance of having a, a root that, that so much of the thought today is really pretending like you can get an idea that's rootless or in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Everything comes from somewhere. That's another thing I think is really, really uh, essential that, that I, I feel like Henry really harped on as well. Um, and and all, of, all of this really ties into what it means to be humble, what it means to be, you know, because I am a human being just like everyone else. And, and ultimately, it's that perspective that connects us. It's not like some theoretical thing that Stalin or, or Trotsky or whoever said. It's, it's the humanness. That that uh, just beams out of the language that Henry used, um, um, and yeah, you know, I was I was happy to have my my uncle showed up. I told him about it last minute. He came for two days, which was great. Um, my mom came, which I was happy to see. My my wife and her and her little brother came. He's in high school. He's been he's now reading the uh, Ibram Kendi book for a second time. Oh, no. Wasn't really a fan of it the first time. <laughs> Neither was apparently all his classmates were a big fan too. So this, the good thing to hear. <laughs> the fact that they have to read it again is an interesting thing. But he has some interesting questions. He talked to Catherine Blunt a lot. It was nice to see. But he asked me like the one question he asked was how you know how do you know if a movement or or a, an uprising is revolutionary? And I think well, where are the ideas? Where, where are the where's the, the theory that they're coming towards? 
definitely, you know, had, had different ideas and, and um, like in many ways, a lot of this was able to, to get through in this in this world that he lived in, which is apparently, you know, Ibram Kennedy and whatever else you can get from outside of school. But I'm glad we were able to give that to whoever we could. We'll come back. Uh, is it our to go to Ami, Viet Lao, Khmer? Can you tell us what it is again, you know? Yeah. And um, how it was formed? It, it came about in discussion between myself and Brandon. Tell everybody what it is again. Oh, Viet Lao, Khmer. It's a. Uh, we, we study the common heritage between Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, uh, and the, the anti-colonial movement and the liberation struggle that uh, came out of the people there. Um, I mean, mostly out of the conversations that I've had with uh, Brandon, and then later, you know, Chandra and my sister, about uh, this, the sort of state of young people uh, living in the diaspora, Asian Americans, um, and how uh, separated, how alienated they are from uh, like this strong history, this strong tradition that they're only a generation if that apart from. Um, and it's at their peril. It's at, a, it's at our uh, generation's peril to distance from that. Um, and so uh, after a lot of conversations, uh, we wanted to kind of embark on this project, which exists, you know, on social media where we can reach um, sort of younger people um, uh, to to learn about like the leaders, revolutionary leaders, what they were writing, um, how their partnerships function, but also um, I think a big kind of sticking point was um, like the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot, and like how com absolutely confusing that is to like uh, academics or like people speak in in history like that. And so uh, young people, I think, um, are immersed in like this kind of ruling class. Um, understanding of their history where they they just don't see themselves as a part of it right and then if, if, if you know that befalls you then um you can submerge yourself in white and basically become a pawn to um you know uh, the western kind of world uh so yeah i mean a lot of it is motivated by like our interactions with the young people in philadelphia uh young asians young you know vietnamese uh cambodians uh, and lao people um, and I think in our, in our reading, we were reading a lot of journalists, we were reading a lot of, um, historical narratives at the time. And, uh, I guess, you know, when you brought Julian Assange, um, uh, it reminded me a lot about the journalists who were reading, uh, Wolfgang Um, and, and, you know, the journalists taking on China, taking on Korea. Um, and, and the, the principal nature of, like, uh, an institution like journalism as um, one of seeking the truth, not just stating the facts um, as you see them, but also like uncovering the truth of the matter. Uh, and Wilfred Burchett in like the sort of you know lineage of Julian Assange uh, suffered very uh, deeply. Um, and they're both Australian. They are. That's right. They are both. Australian. It's really fun that that Wilfred Burchett is his role model. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I, I can see very clearly the, the connection between Assange and Burchett. I mean, Burchett uh, lost his citizenship. You know, he was public enemy number one of Australia. Um, 
and he had to find his second home, which he loved dearly, very dearly in Vietnam, among the uh, liberation uh, fighters. And um, yeah, I mean, that kind of plays into like our understanding of history, because it's, if our truth tellers are like ostracized in that way, then the, the narrative becomes one of the world class. So, um, you know, thinking a lot about the once noble institution of journalism and <laughs> um, relaying this, you know, it's very important to act with a communication background. Like, it's like, I think about it a lot. Um, uh, and then finally, I guess I can talk to um, the choice of young people between uh, like the Western worldview and a, and a rising writing Asian, writing Africa, um, and seeing, like, making that choice to see yourself among that, um, among that movement that came out of it. I produced here, produced the diaspora, <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's filling a pride, essentially, to, to know figures like uh, Sukarno or Ho Chi Minh or Sukhanabong, um, uh, like, these are Laotian, Cambodian leaders in the um, that held uh, principled views, made very difficult decisions um, at the time. But I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I guess we do ourselves a disservice by dis distancing ourselves from um, these traditions. And then also, like, uh, within the vein, uh, vein of grief, like tying ourselves to the Black radical tradition, um, the two boys, the Baldwin, um, who uh, like writing on peace is essentially like tied itself very, uh, very clearly to the national liberation. Um, so yeah, I feel like my maybe just uh, under a year old, or maybe just about a year old. Um, we've produced uh, information online um, on these things that we're talking about, the readings that we're reading, um, poetry. Um, we're just like arts and culture of, of, of the continent, of Asia, and uh, to try to reach the young people um, in Philadelphia, but also abroad, maintain relationships with some other organizations. Um, and we're, it's also like a little difficult because we're finding ourselves butting heads with other organizations that seem to take offense at things that we talk about. And, like that's the whole campus of stuff, which doesn't really bug me anymore, but, um, <laughs> but it, it used to, but not now. Um, because I know how important this work is um, and how important principle is. So, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, could I ask you, uh, yeah, could you, um, I know there's an event between uh, Viet Lao, Khmer, and uh, uh, Van Dung coming up. Could you tell us a little bit about it? and? Sure, yeah, uh, it's, um, it's this collaboration we have with the Van Dung Reading Group. Um, in late January on uh, the, the the struggles in Vietnam and, and Korea, um, and, and the sort of the similarities and differences, and um, the lessons that came out of those struggles. Um, and, you know, there are significant populations of both in Philadelphia and, you know, in the diaspora. Um, and it's like the, the same kind of conversations that we both been having in our two groups. Um, uh, what is the destiny of Asian America, um, and what choices does Asian America, like Asians yeah. in America, have 
Um, so it's very exciting um, uh, collaboration and um, yeah, we're going to be continuing that same vein of the Winston Symposium of Design Can I just say something about, I mean, just to bring everybody up yeah. to date about our meeting uh, on Thursday. I think, you know, this um, this collaboration, am I pronounced Vietnam? Fine. Kamai, Kamai, why Kamai not Khmer? Uh, that, that's just the way they can go. Oh, really? Okay. The Vietnamese people are Viet loud and loud. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a very poetic name. You can tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It right? really yeah. is. Nice. Yeah. I know. Very nice, very nice. <laughs> but, um, you know, as you said, using the model of the Winston and China events and, um, you know, one of the things we were talking about is the connection to people like Reverend Lee, Helen Gim, mm -hmm. and uh, and engaging them in this uh, larger discussion of peace and democracy, and as you put it, the Asian American. Where does the Asian American fit in, given the diaspora and the anti-colonial struggles and all that type? Thing, which is very radicalizing. So um, I just wanted to put tell everybody about that because you know, and you say it's for the end of January. Yes. Uh, okay. Do you think you got enough time? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> you know, uh, we really do. I know. It, no, no.
have a real opportunity to complete people's democracy. And there's so much opportunity in America, and I think you see a lot in our reading groups how like, all our little groups are all like working towards the idea of global America's democracy, like people's democracy. Like, what we build to like struggle for people's democracy. Yeah, the one thing that even something that I thought about from what um, your group was talking about, specifically Emil, when you say like you have to make that switch from saying like what is like why why am I supposed to do this event and why does that make me instead saying like what will happen like why is why does why do these like events but also like these kinds of political and ideological um, efforts that we're doing, like why do they need to be made? Um, it, I, I don't know if you were pulling it from King, but King has that sermon where he's like, the, he's talking about like the Jericho Road, and he's saying, instead of asking what will happen to me if I, if I help this man on the side of the road, instead you have to ask what will happen to this man if I don't help? And I think that's also, in a way, that's the question that we're trying or we're hoping that. Um, Asians in this country can start to ask that question. What will happen to this country if we don't bring into it and inject that kind of spirit which we can inherit from That's our the question yeah. with Helen. Remember, we're yeah, talking yeah. about a tactic to approach Helen. Yeah. I think I think you just framed it, Jerry. Helen, Helen, uh, Helen Gim. Oh, Helen Gim, Councilwoman Helen Gim. You know, and Reverend Lee, of course. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean, yeah, yeah. but that's the formulation. That is it right there. What will happen to the country if Asians <laughs> abstain? Mm. Mm. Given, as you say, the history, the anti-colonial history, the democratic striving that comes from, you know, you all are here, but you also have a heritage. It's very, I think, I think that works. Because, you know, we would, Thinking because it's all you know, it's political. How do you approach, you know, these very important public figures? I think we just okay. Uh, should we move to Sophie and Nathan? Thank you. Yeah, I think this relates. Speak a up, uh, I think this relates a lot to, especially your introduction this morning about the lack of abroad education, and also Sarah, if you know what you were talking about. Like the young person has nowhere to turn right now for genuine um, leadership and a genuine outlet of um, political expression. And so the last few weeks, Nathan and I have been talking about how we came into the free school and this work pretty early in our lives. And we still have at least two more years in, in universities and that it's been hard to connect with other students um, and share these ideas in in an organic way and um, to have that mutual trust between us and other students. And um, yet we see that there's a real need for it and that there is potential among students, but the best that they have is, like you said, these groups that are Ultimately, arms of nonprofits like Police 310 and right. and other groups that you know they try to do something real. They try to get to the community, but they just can't. 
um, because they don't have the fundamentals right. Um, they look to people like Rick Kajuski and um, these other agents in the city. But um, we've been trying to. Can I ask a question? Now, your group is specifically focused on students. Is that okay? Yes. Now I understand. Yeah. That's, Mm -hmm. Because the way that Lotus has evolved, um, we've realized that bringing students into it now would not be politically correct, and it also would just be immensely difficult. Um, so we're asking the question of what ideas and issues are on students' minds right now, because we know they're thinking it's impossible to be in Philadelphia and not think of the immense contradictions in the city. What does it mean to be at Penn in the center of safety while like around you black people are dying? Um, people are being pushed out of their homes. People are asking these questions, but um, like what is actually to be done here? What is the young person's role in the city? And um, and we think it's really important that students have an alternative um, place to discuss these ideas. Um, yeah, so we're trying to build something organic and welcoming to students across Philadelphia and some schools, um, including like what groups exist on these other campuses that um, like we could build with. Um, do you, do you want to add anything? Yeah, sure. Um, kind of like what you were saying, Sophie. I mean, like, the university has like, a lot of potential. Um, but a lot of that is like wasted. Um, like, you have the engineering students, they could become, you know, the war makers. Um, you know, you have people that want to make like, a sentient change, but then they could become like the army, like the nonprofit. And so, just kind of like trying to make. Um, I guess like an ideological grade from like the university to understand like what is it that I can do like as a young person to take, or I guess even understand you have to take, um, like stay in Philadelphia or in the world and what type of choices that you can make right now you have to So, yeah, just to kind of break. Because like students are really funneled, I think, uh, into many things. It's like end up being selfish. Like if you want to go into activism, you have these groups here. If you want to, I don't know, do something else. But there's no real like space yet to really discuss um, the fundamental question of like why even are you going to university? Um, what even are you trying to accomplish? Um, yeah. This is very. I know, um, if I could just say, I know Michelle had brought this up, this idea of the immense potential at, for, among students at the University of, of Pennsylvania, and I, I would say also Temple. But there is, as you said, no place for them to seriously reflect upon and discuss, you know, what is happening to them and why they're in the university and, you know, what they in like you say, what is their purpose in life? What is their moral yeah. grounding? I think this is huge. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's been on our minds for a long time, how to reach students, yeah. because they're our peers. But um, 
in a time when there isn't like a principled issue um, that students can unite around and there's the consciousness is really low there's a lot of um, competing distractions but competing distractions <laughs> you know like um but then the other side where students are so depressed because they're literally dying for something to give their lives to and they just don't know what it is and us also synthesizing with that um and admitting that we don't know what the most powerful um student movement would look like right now or what this group will turn into and earnestly being like to other students, what are you thinking about? Um, yeah, and yeah, I think it has a lot of potential and it's really important. Um, but it is the details are really hard to work yeah. out. <laughs> I'd like to work with you all. We could do it over Zoom. Yeah. I have some ideas since it was raised, you know. Uh, Michelle, I mean, maybe the four of us could do a Zoom, uh, and yeah. and each campus is very different. Yeah. I think Temple, which yeah. we need to talk about. I know, I know uh, uh, Du Bois, uh, Baldwin. Uh, yeah, you all started, and you you know, but it was very difficult to get traction at Temple. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? The ideological conditions are 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 very unique to Temple. Given the the way the African American Studies Department is configured and all of that, but go, I'm sorry. No, I just want to ask. I would say that it's a different, at least in advertising. Okay, well, oh, like I don't know what angle it is that you guys are going at it, but from what I'm hearing about it, in terms of being okay, students can come and say, but that's different than being like, okay, we're a black organization with X. About this because I, I have some ideas having been on this campus and how the and you guys are right the administration are now determining what students do even to be quote radical it's not organic from the bottom it's not student it's uh, the administration and quote the radical professors yeah yeah and it, it F's everything up for me. So it's not a student. And you you all are very right about what you're saying. Oh, go ahead, Michelle, and then uh, Samir. No, I was just saying, I, I like the way you guys describe it as they do this task of clearing away a lot of the distractions, you know, on these campuses and especially Penn. So that, so that coming back to what you were saying, Jordan and Doc, who, you know, an, an organic intellect can be built together. Mm -hmm. Because it's very true that this iteration or this branch of Lotus, it feels it's dealing with a different set of students and a different set of questions from when we first started two and a half years ago. And and um, I mean, the way I see this is that you guys are opening up a space that's desperately needed in a place that is so ideologically confused and cluttered just so people can, um, you know, like build out that intuition and uh, of who they are and, you know, develop an organic intellect again. It's so, 
I guess like I I just wanted to make that point about space. That's the way that I think a lot about our work, yeah. you know, putting space back where it's needed. Um, so that people can come back to an organic way of an organic way of evaluating themselves in their lives. Um, and if they can just have that space, I think the truth has a natural way of coming back out. Um, instead of, you know, all of the paradigms and assumptions of, of you know, the ruling class agenda being so I would just disagree with one thing you said, Michelle, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. I don't think Penn is at all ideological. That's what I was talking about. No, know, I mean, I mean, I mean at, at the level that keeps students off balance. Right, right, right. But, but it's purposeful. Yeah, but it's purposeful. Yeah. It's purposeful. Well, the administration. Okay, yeah, well, I should, I should clarify Penn is comprised by the constitution of students, you know, in that sense. Mm. The minds of people are very confused. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a, I think it's a very conflicted student body. Oh. And I think especially early on in the first and second years, there's a lot of teetering and back and forth in the consciousness of students as they determine, you know, what path they're going to follow. And like you're pushed and pulled in so many directions. It's there's a whole mix of a whole yeah. host of factors. I think it's very chaotic. Yeah. Very yeah. Okay. Oh, go ahead, Samir. Oh, I was just going to agree with Michelle uh, about the space because one of the critical things the reading groups do, and it's a lot of effort, is to get everyone in one room to read together. And I know that's hard. Um, and like at Temple, space is always hard to come by. Yeah. For some reason. For some <laughs> reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you know that's why the church advocate is pretty great. Um, because it's a public space for possible events. And then I was going to say, one of the differences I think between Temple and Penn is Temple is trying to change its identity from a commuter school, the school from North Philadelphia, into a Southern sports school. Yeah. Um, uh, makes sense. And they've changed their uh, demographic from Black and Jewish to White and Jersey and New York. And, <laughs> Lancaster and London County, mm -hmm. and so that's one of the different. That's something that's why it's different at Temple. Yeah. It's is it, it, how, I don't know how different it is between uh, Drexel, UPenn, uh, but then there's CCP, Temple, yeah. Yeah. Um, the art schools, yeah. and um, University of Sciences. New Sciences. Lafayette. Um, okay.
And I was thinking about how there's this tradition of students who identify as Penn students but interact with the city in a principled manner. And I also thought of how Lily herself was a Penn student and she chose to go to North Philadelphia. She was going between the two, you know, when she first came up to the village. But now, you know, the consciousness of students is such that it's either they're Penn students or they shed that identity entirely because they're so ashamed and they become a Philadelphian. You know, like you go up to Kensington and you join the CSL, but you don't want anyone to know that you have any affiliation with Penn. And so part of this is also restoring like a more principled relationship between Penn knowing that it's an important institution in the city and the rest of the city. Wow, this is very interesting. Uh, could I, um, if you don't mind, could I go on to um, uh, yeah, sure. the in, uh, in India? Uh, yeah. And then we'll go to uh, Caleb. Can we, can we go to MIT? Okay, uh, this is the description which was sent to me by Nanta and Raj describing their work. So I'll be reading. In what city? It'll get to that in
These ideas are capable of addressing the human problems of this time. So far in our experiences, we have found that there is a deep ideological crisis in, in India. The left has largely abandoned the ideological struggle and no political force is offering a positive vision which can unite the nation against the forces of imperialism. At the same time, Indian society and the Indian people continue to be optimistic and hopeful about the future. And there is no sign of the deep social catastrophe that confronts the West. The neo-colonial character of the current situation is reflected in all institutions of the country, including academia and the media. We feel a deep lack of self-confidence, especially among the intellectuals who look to the white world in all fields and do not appreciate the crisis of the West. There has also been a systematic attack on Indian culture and music. Currently, we, along with others in the Saturday Preschool, are engaged in a study of the Indian freedom struggle to understand the essence of the revolutionary struggle in the context of the Indian situation. Next year marks 75 years of India's independence. We want to commemorate this by starting a reading group in Bangalore, as part of which we will read figures such as Nehru, Rabindranath Tagore, Gandhi, and W.E.B. Du Bois, among others. Further, we want to emphasize the relationship between the Indian freedom struggle and the world movement for freedom. For this, we are thinking of organizing several events next year. One of these will be an event discussing democracy and the civilization state, possibly as a dialogue between Indian, Chinese, and Afro-American intellectuals. We are further thinking of an event on Du Bois, Lenin, and Gandhi, trying to uh, synthesize the thinking of these different revolutionary figures for our time. Talking with um, uh, Raju and Nandasa about this dialogue on democracy, which would be India, China, and the Black Freedom Movement. And, uh, you know, I, I was very struck by how I put it, I use the word subversive, this kind of conversation is in India. And, um, but I think it, it could be a really great event. We talked about, you know, uh, academics and scholars from China, academics and scholars from India, and prominent academics and scholars from the Black Freedom Movement, including, I, I guess I could say to them, Angela Davis, Cornell West, and some others. Uh, and it's, you know, everybody doesn't have to agree on everything, but a different kind of discussion and recentering the discussion of democracy. Uh, so yeah, uh, are there any questions? Okay, let's go. Let's, we have to go now to. Oh, oh, oh I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, Caleb and MIT. Um, I can read the message that Just speak up just a little bit, Caleb. Yeah.
here accept comfortable, high-paying jobs for large tech corporations, become financial consultants, go into academia, or any career path which further obscures what the issues we are actually up against today. But they feel forced to keep working in out of a sense of fear of not having enough for themselves in their lives. As of now, the vast majority of students at MIT lack substantial political awareness and consciousness. There is a generally there is generally a sense of aimlessness and hopelessness among students, where we spend our time learning technical skills and becoming convinced we are the future's leaders who understand the truth of the world through our true understanding of science, math, and engineering, but carry out a sense of emptiness where deep down students don't really believe there is or can be meaning in their lives. All of this while never being taught where this emptiness comes from. What I've noticed most though, not sure if it's because MIT is a technology school, is that people don't understand how to develop distinctly human relationships. How do we talk to each other beyond our roles as just students, beyond people seeking to earn a six-figure salary, beyond people seeking academic prestige, but as people who care about fighting for democracy, the dignity of all people, and reclaiming a sense of meaning to the technological work we do, who are capable of going beyond our fears and anxieties. The questions we're grappling, we're tackling with our reading is how do we form these meaningful relationships based on a shared vision for what the future should be and what our problems today are, and how do we think of ourselves as not simply developing more technology, which will never meaningfully address our social issues in our current state, but we think ourselves as having political agency. How do we go beyond caring about having enough for ourselves, having dignity for ourselves, but first and foremost, for all people? Yeah. I think we have to do more to get them down here more often. Because <laughs> um, I think they, but they did address the question of Sophie and uh, Nathan. You know, the question on these college campuses of meaning. You know, of human, of the we rather than just the me. I, I think this is. Yeah, I thought that was. Yeah, 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 yeah. What were the last two lines? Could you read it again? Uh, the last two lines were How do we go beyond caring about having enough for ourselves? Right. How do you dignity for ourselves? The first and foremost for all people. The weak question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the line before that? I'm sorry. Read the whole thing. Sideways. Exactly. You're exactly. right. And you're so absolutely right. Yeah, you're talking from 
I admire where we're all kind of coming from and the goal that we want to achieve. Um, I just, I think it's a really good thing. And I think that, um, you know, from what you're saying, Sophie, like, to be human being, to be able to contribute something, make something out of this country. Um, like, same thing, scientists who have a role in building society, you know? It's the same thing, artists who have a role in building, you know? Making something. And that's the thing with the child, that's the thing with the question of democracy. Um, really, or even the Russia and America, understanding that we all kind of came to, um, being able to see a society in which people, politically educated people, were able to have the dignity and build what they found fit for their situation and what they needed. And I really admire that what this means is like it has an ultimate goal of really educating others around us. Um, you know, to be able to rebuild society in the sense I'm saying rebuild in terms of the crisis that this country is facing. Like we really, in a way, to me, and I don't mean to get too excited, but it is something that uh, it is a heavy responsibility. Um, and I feel as though I'm glad that I'm in a room with people who are willing to do that. Um, and, and you know, I'm just saying this is, this is the broadness of the areas that we are tackling. And I just wanted to say that. But I can't tell you how glad I'm in, and I am to be in the room with people like you all. And uh, you know, I often. Uh, Think about my own role in all of this because, um, you know, age wise, I'm not in your cohort. You know what I'm saying? And, um, but it is not a problem for me at all. I just hope it's not a problem for you all. I don't know, you know. <laughs> no, 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 do that for uh, what Emil pointed out. Build a principle of unity mm -hmm. with yeah. forces that you know. But there's gonna be that. No, but I'm just saying I don't feel any uh, disconnect from you all. Okay. And the way you all talk is the way I would talk, whether everybody in here was my age. Well, that's true. But I, I other the other thing is. I don't think I could find a community like this one if everybody was my age, because most of them have already sold out, or maybe they sold out even before they got to this age. <laughs> uh, I know you all sometimes feel a certain amount of uh, dissatisfaction with your generation, uh, 
you don't want to hear me talk about my generation at this point <laughs> because then I have to get some cursing and I'm in a church. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, you all do constitute what is in effect a vanguard, and I, I mean that in the in the broadest sense of um, what Du Bois would call a guiding 100, the leading group who leads with ideas and with art and with genuine concern for people, and nobody can miss this. Nobody, the genuineness of the free school. And that means all of us together. And we are the same in that respect. Our values make us who we are. And we share these values. And we, you know, we work so hard to develop these values. I guess you would say it like that. Uh, but I, I, I don't know, I'm, another time I'll talk more about how I see my role. And um, first thing I, I would just say, tell you, I uh, have no interest, I don't try to in any fake way abdicate my responsibility. You know, uh, by in a fake way, well, let us all come together. Ah. I don't, that doesn't appeal to me, you know. Huh? No, 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 that's not. But, you know, I have, of course, I have a, a very unique experience, not just because I'm older than you all, but because I've had a unique experience. And um, I grew up in a different period of struggle in the world and in this country. And that's what I always try to share. That's why I'm always telling stories uh, about different things and um, such. And then of course, I'm from here. I've always grew up in Philadelphia. A lot of it, like Father Washington, I know him. I know the, you know, a lot of people in the city. I know the way the city kind of works. And, um, so I would not abdicate my responsibility to share all that I know, all that I have experienced with you all. And I have, I'm not one of these people who is trying to hold back. If I know something, uh, I'll share it. And that's what I try to do uh, in the preschool. I sometimes, and this how do I express this? You know, when people leave the preschool for whatever reasons, and there are many reasons, um, and it's like Serafina said, the human factor, and the human factor is a complex thing. People sometimes have uh, emotional, personal problems, and I could identify people who have ex experienced those in the preschool, and they just have to leave, you know? Uh, it's not that they're against the preschool, it's that things are going on with them and have been going on with them. Others leave for ideological reasons, uh, often obscured as other things, but nonetheless ideological. Uh, some people leave because they can't have their way, you know? 
in the free school. Um, and uh, as, as you know, our experiences kind of proved, and it's good that they didn't have their way, some of them. Because uh, I don't know whether you remember, you guys, anybody here remembers this, but um, if Magna was, I guess you, you around, Johan, uh, we had some serious battles with identity politics people. I mean, when we had to read uh, Audre Lorde, I know I had to read the biography, Audre Lorde's biography, we had to get clear because it was a question of Baldwin or Audre Lorde, and it was that question. And, um, and people, you know, left really, you know, I, don't, I, I mean, I know of Magna and, um, and none of us were here, they could describe just what I'm saying. People left angry. And they accused. See, this, this thing, it's not a matter of whether you're trans or not trans, gay or not gay. That's not the question. The question is the weaponization of it against the working people and the democratic aspirations of working people. And come on, that's what it is. Nobody has ever been asked to leave the preschool because of their sexuality. And let me tell you, by my estimate, and I don't know this to be a fact because we don't add it. <laughs> I would say at least one fourth, probably more of the free school are non-heterosexual. At least. And you guys don't know half of the story because it's not a public issue. I'm talking about on the old head side. Not just on the young head side. Uh, yeah, so, but what the free school opposed was this fake uh, solidarity with gay, lesbian, trans people. And it is fake because it's not about the majority of them. Never was. So we had to go through that. That, you know, I know uh, <laughs> Michelle and I talk about things like this, and I, I said, oh, girl, you ain't been through nothing. <laughs> there have been some serious challenges to what we are, what we have become. Um, some people thought we shouldn't have done the year of God. There were people in the broad community who did everything they could to undermine the year before, including the rapping professor on WURD. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was quite, but nonetheless, <laughs> you know, we continue. And the other thing is, I, I would say, um, I'm trying to talk about how I see my role. Um, I was just going to say, I don't abdicate my responsibility to be at preschool every week, to be on time at preschool, to, um, to think about how we're framing the week's discussion. That has fallen upon my shoulders. That's my responsibility. I'm not taking this away from anybody else or 
but this is what I must do. You, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and I think that in operating like this, I operate with the agreement of most people in the free school. Uh, those who think otherwise, they wouldn't come back. But I think those who think otherwise have resorted to pettiness and just trying to find some way to find something wrong with something that's so good as the free school. Does that make sense? Yeah. Something that is so good. And the other thing, so good for so many people. That helps so many people. So you have to find people, and you, this is this is there's a politic to it. There's a there's a personality thing to it, and you'll find this. I, I know when I talk to Michelle, I try to explain this experience that you're never going to completely eradicate pettiness, mm -hmm. jealousy, competition, and so the. So the free school is doing better now than some people want to leave. I say, well, why are you leaving? Some people say, well, of course, you're not reading enough books. I don't know how much more reading we could do. I'm trying to keep up myself. But I guess what I would say is sometimes um, you have done so well in achieving what you set out to achieve. Like Magna said in her calculation, I think over the last five years, there have been 19 major political educational events put on by the free school. I don't think there's anyone in this city, I'd even go as far as New York, mm. <laughs> I don't think anyone has done as many events to educate the people. Mm -hmm. And not just the free school by itself, the free school with Mother Bethlehem the Church, it's the free school co-sponsoring the China event, the Winston event mm -hmm. with the Church of the Advocate, it's the free school doing Palestine and other events uh, with 1199C. It's the free school living in the community that we're situated in. I just tag on because that's a very serious statement. Yes, what you just said is very serious. Like 19 events to politically educate people in Philadelphia. I, I just I, I emphasize that I just find it to be such a serious thing because like sometimes it's the same people, sometimes it's just us, sometimes it's more people. I don't know when it's ever been just that. Well, I'm having smaller events. But okay, let me make a point, please. Okay. Because I, what I'm saying here is that, you know, the development and the education uh, that the people that come to the preschool um, have over the course of time has led us, well, to this point, but also has, like, I don't know what, I just, I just find it to be such a profound thing that over the course of our 10 years, 10 years at this point, 19 events, um, we have reached a point um, and where we're trying to figure out where we are. You know what I mean? But also we're at a, uh, at a stage of political advancement where we can push 
quantify things like this. Mm -hmm. But I think all of us would say something is different in Philadelphia because of the existence of a free school. Yeah. Yeah. If there were not a free school, just for ourselves, I know it'd be hard to imagine Philadelphia at this stage. Something has changed. We haven't made the revolution, of course, but something because of the free school. And now we want to even go further. But which means also that there's something different because of the people of the, of the, of the free school. That's absolutely, that's the point. That's it. And that's why, you know, I can't uh, see myself uh, how, how, uh, patronizing you all. Right. Oh, you're young people, you don't know. No, 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 no. Right. I see you as very responsible political agents in this city. Mm -hmm. And I think what you all have done proves it. And surmounting and solving political issues going forward. The China event solved a number, just to organize it. The Baldwin, I mean, the pardon me, the Winston event. And of course, we have to face all the time the boycott, the smear, the you know, talk behind the back kind of thing. But it is a credit to you all. And that's why your ages are not as important as your political, ideological, and moral character. It, you all don't operate like young people are supposed to operate in this society. Depressed, all, if you're at an elite university, depressed all the time. Part you, you hear on Saturday at 10 o'clock and earlier. I mean, which means that you weren't out drinking all night or smoking weed all night. You know what I'm saying? That you know you have to be here, you hear. And then the organization of all these satellites all over the place that are doing different things, specific things. It's such a statement. Um, but the other thing is, I, I would just say, going forward, there's still questions, and these are, you know, um, Michelle asked the question of transition. Uh, Tara asked me this question too, you know, about the idea of the Vanguard Party uh, and how would it function? Or she asked me something, do we need a Vanguard Party at this time? of the Leninist type. And I think that's a question that's on the table. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, when I say that, because of the great history of Leninism, what it achieved, what it contributed, yada, 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 yada. Well, but maybe we're in a different stage of history. And the form of political social organization will be different. I could, I could talk about that a little bit more. But in the fight for democracy and peace, the transition to new forms of popular, by popular I mean people's organization and coalition, even more important than the Vanguard Party. 
What is the united front? What is the role of the church? What is the role of the union? What is the role of especially the historically black institutions like universities, yada, 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 yada. That is the big question because people will move not because they are led in that sense of a singular leadership, but because they are organized. And this is a big question. And I think, I think that the free school comes closest to what might be the movement of a new type in a world that is unlike anything previous revolutionary generations have imagined or seen for a lot of reasons. But uh, I just want to say one other thing about my role. <laughs> As uh, sometimes, um, I'm conscious of how our ages make us different. I mean, because I don't hang out with y'all. You all know more about me than I know about you, <laughs> which I don't always appreciate. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I feel I'm more transparent with you all than you all are with me. Um, 
I was saying to Michelle how uh, how rich that experience of organizing the China event. That was six months. Mm. How rich that was. How enriching it was. You know, of course, you know, I had the opportunity to work with Serafina, mm -hmm. and uh, I had no, no idea. I had no idea who Serafina was. <laughs> but I can say, but Serafina is not Serafina that she was six months ago. That's why it's hard for somebody to come. I've been away from the free school for a year. I'm going to come back. All I can say, yeah, come on back, but it's not the same. Because the upward trajectory, especially of you all, the younger ones, has, is so uh, quick, so fast, that if you come back, if you saw Michelle a year ago, two years ago, and you see her now, you, you're looking at two different people. Yeah, You're looking at two different people. I mean, I could say about Sophie when she first came here. I could say about Caleb. I could say about uh, Jake. I could say about every person in this room. Drink. I can the the transformation has been so um, dramatic, you know that it's it's you wouldn't recognize if you're away from the free school for six months, you come back, you wouldn't recognize the preschool because you wouldn't know the people. And, you know, I'm, I'm having the opportunity to experience and enjoy all of this. And it is a joyful thing. I have, actually, I don't have anything, any criticism of the preschool. I really don't. If I would, if I would, you know, probe into my, what would I criticize about preschool? I don't know what I would. I don't think there's anything. I think it is as close to the political organization and ideological organization for this time. Of anything I could imagine. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any, I don't know how you could do it any better than this. Mm -hmm. I really don't. Now, with certain improvements that we'll talk about, I don't know how you do it any better than this. Because, you know, one of the problems of the left is that they're completely, um, how do you put it? Um, uh, just completely overweighted burden with bureau bureaucratism. Mm -hmm. And they can't think. Mm -hmm. One thing about over bureaucratic organizations by trying to be something mm -hmm. that you're really not going to be, mm -hmm. that is, quote, the, you know, the, the stereotype of the Leninist part. You're not going to be that money. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I could go name by name, but they're not going. But then, in trying to be that, they do not afford themselves, and especially for the young people, enough space to think and to grow. That's the last priority. Go, go ahead. No, just in these groups. I mean, 
for one thing, most of them are about 30 years too late to be the last. <laughs> and uh, they're trying to imitate a lot of things, but yeah. they, I mean, on their list, the absolute last thing is uh, thinking, is ideology, ideological, uh, you know, uh, struggle or, you know, work, basically. Um, that they usually uh, just put in the hands of a couple of people that, and then they just regurgitate. And uh, that's what they call, you know, the party line, the official line. Yeah. Um, that's why, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's why they, a lot of people get burned out of those things, mm -hmm. too, because, mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen from most of the, of these kind of left groups, uh, the average turnover is usually, in my experience, like maybe two, three years, and then people are usually done with it, because you just can't, I mean, you can't sustain going, like, organizing protests, going to protests, selling papers, after a while, you see it's not going anywhere because you see it's not turning into a mass phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, you, you move on and do something else with your life for the most part. Um, so, yeah, I mean, either that or the other ones which don't claim to be Leninist but are basically just acting as wings of the Democratic Party. Those also people either get disillusioned or they totally just become part of the ruling class apparatus mm -hmm. and have these careers. So. So yeah, I mean, it's, that's the problem. Ideological clarity, ideological struggle, intellectual work is very degraded in the left and yeah. activism. Um, the thing that young people need most. Yeah, exactly. The thing that young people need most. And they deprive young people mm -hmm. of that, mm -hmm. especially in the period of their lives mm -hmm. when they, you know, just, they're so excited by ideas and culture and art and all that type of thing. And you say, well, that's not important. And this is what you must do. You know, that, if I could just give a historical example, you know, that is what happened to the American Trotskyist movement. And that led to, you, you hear about the neocons, the war makers and all of those. Well, a big part of them come out of, neo, uh, out of the New York Trotskyists. They were doing with the world. Pardon me? Arguing with the world is the documentary of all of them. Oh, the arguing with the world. Yeah. Wow. But that, oh, I'm sorry, please, please. Oh, I mean, it's just like, who's the guy, the National Review guy? Irving, Irving, Crystal. Yeah. Crystal, Hal, yeah. the news. That's right. That's right. That's right. And it's, you know, um, it's that loss of mean, meaning. You know, you, you paint yourself into such a narrow corner that you can do, you can go no further with this ideology, this narrow ideology. So you say, well, I, I'll contribute to changing the world by joining the imperialists. Yeah, yeah. but, um, yeah, but, but that's one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've learned this. By being around you all, you cannot say to young people, stop growing. You know, fit into some stereotype. Oh, yeah, man. That, that's what we're describing. And that's why you're going to see, I, I don't know how you feel about this, John, but you're going to see some of the left organizations begin to unravel because the young people can't stay in there. It's too confining. It takes their breath. It takes their life right. from them. It might create new right-wing people. 
Oh, absolutely. Some people will be like, oh, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did that. I found it was wrong. Now let me go to the office today. That's the thing about the crisis of the left in the city. You know, Absolutely. what happens overseas? Uh, yeah, and it's just interesting because what's left is the preschool. Well, but see, what, let me show you another thing, and I agree with you. You know, you, what we take for granted. Is just common sense for us. You work with churches, Church of Advocate, Mother Bethel, whatever other churches, Calvary, whatever other church. You work with people. Do you realize they don't know how to do that? Yeah, they don't. They really don't know how to do it. For us, it's just what we do, but they don't know how to do it. So they can only paint themselves into a more narrow corner. Well, folks, I know Serafina has to go to work. <laughs> and I know Reverend Lee is having something which maybe we can attend. Is that so? I don't know. All the people that know about it, like, Reverend. Um, <laughs> they're already there. <laughs> okay. But that, I think I can go. Huh? If we yeah, want to go. Yeah, yeah, just like, I think they're doing something. He's doing like a Christmas. Something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Well, I don't understand. Let me introduce you. Um, I met um, some folks in the beginning, but I'm dashing. She's from New York. Um, it was such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Sure, just wanted to say one last thing. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, that's it. I just wanted to apologize to Stanley. That's okay. Don't worry about it, man. Like you do so much. No, I was up cleaning like really late. Don't worry. About it. You do. You know, I think Jake and Serafina no, really, have for the last few years. Whenever we come in here, whatever time we get here, we see the tables and chairs set up. These and they've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Good. Thank you,